Inflation figures come out tomorrow in the form of April Consumer Price Index numbers. Americans have been dealing with 40-year highs, shelling out more for everything from gas to rent. Now, while inflation's high, so are corporate profits. We're going to get some perspective on this from Josh Bivens. He's director of research at the left-leaning Economic Policy Institute. Josh, in this moment right now, corporate profits are up. In cases, uh, some cases, record levels. Are consumers being taken advantage of? It's a good question. I mean, I think... I would say consumers are bearing the brunt of what are what is driving this big rise in both inflation and corporate prices. And, and to my mind, the thing driving it is just the obviously incredibly unusual circumstances of sort of whipping back out of a pandemic after it had shut down economies across the world. So, you know, I think corporate sort of greed and market power, they're just a constant background. Um, I think what is different this time is that that power has been channeled into much higher prices and profit margins, and consumers are definitely bearing the brunt of that. Bearing the brunt, though, I mean, it's it's one or the other. Right? It's either corporations bearing the brunt or consumers. There's no third party here. That's right. I think I would just want to distinguish between, you know, it's not like 15 months ago, corporations, you know, woke up and were like, you know what, we want higher profits. Like They always want higher profits. Like they're always trying to fatten their profit margins. In normal times, something is restraining them. I think what we want to really look at for like the root cause of why this is happening is what has allowed them to channel their constant demand for fatter profit margins into actually being able to realize them. And that to me is the distortions imposed on the economy by the pandemic. Yeah. So Josh, let's just say we had a corporate executive with us in this conversation. They would probably say that making the stuff uh, that we put on store shelves costs more. Materials cost more. To ship it to those store shelves costs a lot more. So why wouldn't these costs, these rising costs for corporations not play into inflation? Well, you can actually break down it's like how much of the cost, like output in the corporate sector, how much of that has risen because of higher wages versus higher sort of non-labor input costs versus just fatter profit margins, a bigger markup on those two things. And it's the profit margins that really drive it. I mean, normally corporate profits should be about 12% of the cost of anything, whereas labor should be more like 60%. You know, since this recovery began, it's more like corporate profits accounting for 54% of the total rise in prices, whereas labor costs less than 8%. So it's not just the case that they're passing on costs given to them. They are all putting on a much bigger markup than they usually do. So they're grabbing more of the pie than they, than they maybe the hunger calls for. That's right. Yeah. Now, you mentioned earlier how it's not unusual for corporations to try to maximize profits. I think that we all know that that's what corporations are here to do uh, for the most part. But what about the current situation maybe allows for businesses to raise prices in ways they ordinarily maybe couldn't? I think the big things are that sort of pandemic and just coming really rapidly out of those sort of pandemic shutdowns just really distorted the economy on both the demand and the supply side. Like on the demand side, as people sort of started economic activity again, they moved away from face-to-face services. They still weren't super comfortable with those, and they threw a bunch of money into durable goods instead. And like the classic example is people quit their gym membership and they bought a Peloton. And then just as they tried to channel all this demand into one narrow sector, durable goods, 
that sector ability to provide those goods just collapsed, those supply chain snarls that have you know gotten so much attention. And those are largely COVID-driven as well. And so basically the root of this inflation took hold in that sort of durable goods sector, just the extreme mismatch imposed by the pandemic and demand and supply. Then it kind of radiated outwards. But that to me is like the real driver and the real spark, which caused the inflation we've seen over the past year. Outside of corporations, though, let's just say someone that has a retirement plan. Uh, wouldn't they benefit when a company posts higher profits? Yeah, that's right. I mean, so any, you know, the great sort of teaching moment here in terms of breaking down a price increase into like profits versus wages into input costs is one person's cost is another person's income. I mean, I will say if you look at where most people's income generally comes from, it it is not corporate profits. Basically, you know, 10% of people own about 90% of all corporate equities in the United States. So if you're looking for broad-based strategies to improve people's economic security, just boosting corporate profits really isn't a way to do it. That's Josh Bivens, Director of Research at the Economic Policy Institute. Josh, thanks a lot. Thank you. Money, 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 money. Yeah, I kind of like the sound, though. The worst of inflation may be behind us, but what's still ahead is not looking a whole lot better. Price hikes in April were slightly smaller than the month before, but the cost of essentials like food and rent is still climbing at an alarming rate. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now. Hi, Scott. Hi, Adrian. Scott, annual inflation in April was not quite as high as it was in March. Uh, Tell us more about what we learned today. We learned that we may have crested the peak of inflation, but that it's a long way down to get back to the stable prices we were used to before the pandemic. Uh, Consumer prices in April were 8.3% higher than a year ago. That's just a shade below the 8.5% inflation rate the month before. And oddly enough, gasoline accounts for some of that decline. Gas prices, which you remember soared in March after Russia invaded Ukraine, actually dipped a bit last month. Unfortunately, that April reprieve at the gas pump didn't last. Gas prices have since rebounded, and right now they're hitting record highs. Yeah. You've been talking with people who uh, have been coping with these high prices. What did they tell you? Yeah, I talked with Holly McLean in Rockland, Maine. Uh, She has four kids, and her husband works as a landscaper in the summertime and clears snow in the winter. McLean is really feeling the squeeze of these rising prices, even if last month's inflation rate was a little bit lower. I don't think it's getting any better. A gallon of milk used to be three seventy-five, and now it's four ninety. So, I mean, everything's gone up. McLean's kids go through a lot of milk. Her electric bill has also gone up to almost two hundred dollars a month, and she's noticed that rebound in gasoline prices to four fifty-four a gallon. I can tell you, it cost me over a hundred dollars to fill my tank the other day. We're a six person family and my husband is the only one working so money's tight even if you take out food and energy costs which tend to go up and down a lot the price of everything else in april was up more than six percent three times as high as inflation ought to be what really worries tanya byron in jacksonville florida is rising rent it's pretty depressing i make forty two thousand dollars a year and i can barely afford a one-bedroom apartment. Byron spoke to me from her tiny dining room, which also serves as her office as a travel agent. Byron says the apartment's a throwback to another period in American history when inflation was painfully high. It was built in 1976, and they have not updated anything. (laughs) That got 
the original floors in the kitchens and the bathrooms, the original appliances, the original cabinets, the doors and the and the baseboards are painted brown. It's clean, but it's very basic. Apartment rents in Jacksonville have jumped 23% this year. Byron had hoped to buy a condo by now, but with home prices and mortgage rates also soaring, that seems out of reach. I am genuinely worried about the future, not so much even for myself, but for the people that make less money than I do. What is going to happen to the people making 15 and $18 an hour and the single mothers and people who have mouths to feed? It's very scary to me. High inflation is particularly tough on families who don't have a lot of money to start with. Economist Dan Sickle of Wellesley College says those families tend to have less discretionary spending to cut back on. Typically, food and gasoline and housing are a bigger share of total spending for lower-income households than for higher-income households. What's more, Sickle says, lower-income families typically pay more even for the same goods. They might live farther from suburban warehouse stores and have less flexibility about where and when to shop. Lower-income households might have more limitations on transportation, might have less of an ability to stock up when a particular item is on sale, maybe can't get the giant package of toilet paper to stash in a basement. Sickle chaired an advisory committee that says the government should try to include those differences in its cost-of-living calculations. That might mean reporting different inflation rates for people at different levels of income. The committee also suggests the government update how much weight it gives to different prices more frequently to account for the kinds of changes we've seen in consumer behavior during the pandemic. Early on, for example, people started buying more groceries and fewer restaurant meals. It was hoped that inflation might cool off once people's consumption patterns return to normal, But it may just be that inflation migrates from one class of purchases to another. The Federal Reserve has started to crack down on inflation by raising interest rates in an effort to discourage consumption. Chris Waller, who sits on the Fed's Board of Governors, thinks the economy is strong enough to withstand those rate hikes without a big jump in unemployment. But Waller acknowledged there are no guarantees. Inflation is a tax that everybody pays. Unemployment is a tax a fraction of the population pays. So it really is this kind of touchy problem. We're trying to lower the inflation tax on everybody, but there's a small section of the society that may bear the brunt of that by losing their jobs. There's no magical formula in a textbook that tells you how to do it, Waller said this week. You kind of have to take your chances and see where it goes. So, Scott, where do forecasters think inflation will go from here? It may well be that the 8.5% inflation rate we saw in March was the high water mark and that price increases will gradually slow down from here on out. We are starting to see a drop in the price of some goods, like used cars, for example, which were a big driver of inflation last year. On the other hand, we're also seeing a jump in the price of some services. Airline tickets, for example, saw a big spike in prices last month, and that might continue this summer as people are traveling more, especially if airline fuel costs stay high. So, Adrian, it looks like the trail down from peak inflation could be long and bumpy. That's NPR's Scott Horsley. Scott, thank you. You're welcome. Black radio, black radio. At a moment when diversity in broadcast ownership is declining, Kansas City stands out because it houses the nation's oldest black-owned radio company. From KCUR, Suzanne Hogan reports. 
Black-owned broadcasters have long faced a difficult path in the United States, from Jim Crow-era discrimination to racist practices by the Federal Communications Commission. But in Kansas City, Carter Broadcast Group has been a cultural touchstone that broke through those barriers, amplifying black music and culture. But it's done even more than that. Freddie Bell grew up as a radio fan and later became a DJ for the company in the 1970s. It was the only radio station in our community that dealt with our community needs. Speaking, of course, of the African-American community. Jim Winston, who leads the National Association of Black Broadcasters, says that deep community connection is why diversity in media ownership is so important. It makes a difference from the top. It makes a difference in editorial policy. It makes a difference in the news you cover and the news you report. KPRS AM was founded in 1950 by black radio pioneer Andrew Skip Carter and has grown to become Carter Broadcast Group, which owns an AM and FM gospel channel, an HD station of R&B classics, and KPRS FM, Hot 103 Jams. Hot 103 Jams, Kansas City's number one for hip-hop and R&B. It is your boy, Playmaker. It's a company that has helped groom new generations of talent, like Hot 103 Jams DJ Chris Stimson. Pretty much feel like I grew up with these people, you know what I mean? I feel like I actually became a boy to a man up here. It's crazy. But across the country, commercial radio is struggling, and black ownership of radio stations continues to decline. Now representing less than 2% of the market, that has Jim Winston worried about the future. We've seen a lot of our members vacate the industry. Of course, the history of black radio in America has been blocked by significant hurdles. But by the 1940s, black broadcasters did begin to break through like WDIA in Memphis and WERD in Atlanta. Well, it's 12 noon, and it's time for Lunch Call. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Lunch Call Show. It's radio's maddest 60 minutes of music, mirth, and merriment. Around that same time in Kansas City, Carter Broadcast Group's founder, Andrew Skip Carter, wrote a critique of the industry's racist practices that was published in Broadcasting Magazine, and it got the attention of failed Republican presidential candidate Alf Landon. Landon helped Carter start KPRS AM in 1950. Carter's dream was to be a commercial radio station that both entertained and informed. Now his grandson, Mike Carter, who started at the company as an eight-year-old jazz DJ, continues that mission as vice president of the National Association of Black Broadcasters and CEO of Carter Broadcast Group. To state that we're the oldest black-owned radio company in America today... That's, you know, that's huge. Last July, North Carolina Democrat G.K. Butterfield introduced a bill that would help expand broadcast ownership opportunities for minorities. But Congress hasn't taken that up yet. In the meantime, Carter Broadcast Group continues to fill the airwaves, not just as a Kansas City gem, but also as something of a national treasure, as the oldest of its kind in the country, celebrating 72 years in the business. For NPR News, I'm Suzanne Hogan in Kansas City, Missouri. That's right. We're moving to Mississippi, and you know how that spells. M I crooked letter, crooked letter I, crooked letter, crooked letter I, hook back, hook back I. <laughs> For this next story, we're going to Mississippi. Mississippi is a state from which the Roe versus Wade challenge at the Supreme Court originates. There, we spoke with Getty Israel. She founded a women's health clinic called Sisters in Birth. 
Israel says she's heard from the media seeking an interview only because of the recent news, and to her, that's problematic. Our colleague Leila Fadel started the conversation there. So I want to just start by actually talking to you about getting a call from us to talk in this moment when the Supreme Court draft opinion is out. And you talked about the frustration you have with the media, with politicians, for ignoring wider issues around reproductive health until moments like this. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Well, first of all, birth in Mississippi is a very complex, very complicated problem. Those problems in Mississippi started long before the controversy surrounding the Supreme Court. There are so many birth disparities and social disparities, and abortion is simply one of those birth outcomes that we consider to be a birth disparity. And we don't spend the time to look for solutions, to look at underlying risk factors that we know are connected and that are driving these outcomes. And when you look at women who are more likely to experience or seek out an induced termination, those women have similar risk factors. So that's how I see abortion within the context, a larger context of a public health crisis, not a political issue, but a public health crisis. And we have yet to address it as a public health crisis, along with all the other things, the social determinants of health, and the other medical issues that we know are driving these horrible numbers in Mississippi, which I consider to be ground zero. Yeah. Let's talk about those underlying issues. I mean, the highest rate of teen pregnancy in Mississippi, lowest life expectancy in the U.S., highest infant mortality rate, um, and high rates of abortion among black women. Let's talk about the underlying issues that are driving what you call a public health crisis. Mm Mm-hmm. We can't ignore the fact that Mississippi is considered a very poor state, particularly for women and especially for mothers. Take for consideration that 43, almost 44 percent of our workforce here is made up of cashiers. Well, what do they earn? Minimum wage benefits? Doubt it. Highly unlikely. Well, 55 percent of that workforce is made up of women. Well, who are those women? They're primarily working mothers. Mm. My patients, nine out of 10 patients that we see are working in a retail setting or a fast food setting. They work hard, but they can't qualify for health benefits. That's why Mississippi covers almost 70%, the highest in the nation, of pregnancies and births. What I'm saying is we need to, as a state that claims to be a pro-life state, we need to provide comprehensive services and support to a person who's in this category. And that means helping her to get out of the hole, which is called poverty, and onto her feet. And how do we do that? By helping her to go to college, community college, getting a degree in uh, a healthcare area, which is in demand here. So then this comes down to people who have access to healthcare and education and people who don't. And most of those women happen to be Black women in the state of Mississippi. Keep in mind that Mississippi has the largest proportion of black people in the country. The largest proportion right here. So that number, that rate that everybody's quoting now nationally, that black women are 25 to 3.5% more likely to get an abortion, that number doesn't tell a whole story. No, it doesn't tell the whole story. Over the last 10 years, black women have accounted for 68, an average of 68% 
of terminations here or abortions here, but nobody asks why. And when we get phone calls from women, and we do, who are looking for an abortion, the first question I ask is, what's going on? Why do you feel the need to have an abortion? It is not for me to judge her. It is for me to figure out, can I help her? Can I help her? Because, yes, I want to change her mind. Yes, I want to reduce the abortion rate. That's a lot of black lives lost in an era of Black Lives Matter. So the problem I have with people who are on the pro-choice side is that they only care about defending the law. What they don't care about, it seems to me, are the lives of the women who are really being impacted. Mm -hmm. I see, for instance, and I've already been very critical of the so-called pro-life side. Right here locally, I take them to task all the time. But the pro-choice people are willing to wage war, political war, to protect this law, but they're not willing to help create any community-based interventions to address the various underlying risk factors that will lead a woman to look for an abortion. So when you watch this national debate about access to abortion, whether it should be banned or whether it should be legal, what's missing from that conversation? What's missing is the women who are most likely impacted by this law or by abortion in general are never invited to the table. No one ever says, what do you need? What can we do to help improve your life so that you don't find that you need to have an abortion? What's going on with you? What can we do in your community? But those are the, that's what's missing, the social component. When a woman is seeking an abortion, nine times out of 10, she is alone. She is alone in this process. Pro-choice people aren't walking down that path with her, and neither are the pro-life people beyond beating her over the head with a Bible and scripture. Who's walking down the path with her to have the baby or to have the abortion? Neither group is. The social compact, the human component is missing from this story. Women need more than simply access to abortion. Women need a higher quality of life to start with. Getty Israel is the founder and CEO of Sisters in Birth. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. You see, but they're very unhappy about their appearance. I think there's an article in the handout about a woman who was, white woman who was in Hawaii. And she said that being around the Hawaiian people and the Asian people, and she said she was tall and white and pale. She said she felt like a freak. And so then she started getting involved in genetic science. Yesterday, we told the story of our public radio colleague, Sasha Woodruff, who late last year went through with a complicated decision to completely remove her stomach. You know, once you don't have a stomach, you actually realize that you don't really need one. She had that surgery because a doctor called her in 2019 and said that she had tested positive for a gene mutation that causes a rare, potentially lethal form of stomach cancer. Woodruff hadn't known she was going to be screened for that particular mutation when she first decided to undergo genetic testing. But after several years of investigating it, she's grateful for the information. And as genetic testing becomes cheaper and more accessible, Woodruff's story raises questions about how much information patients should have and how they should receive it. 
My co-host, Ari Shapiro, spoke to two experts who think a lot about this. Nita Farahani, professor of law and philosophy at Duke University, where she focuses on the implications of emerging technologies, and Hank Greeley, professor of law and biosciences at Stanford University, where he focuses on ethical, legal, and social implications of advances in bioscience. Let me first get your reaction to Sasha's story, and especially the fact that she was contacted without knowing she had given consent to be informed about a genetic mutation that she did not even know she was being tested for. What do you make of this? Oh, there's so much. I, there's so much to make of it, right? I mean, so first, you know, I think it's not probably that unusual in the coming days of what we can expect from genetic testing. And because what we know about genetics is changing all the time, it's not that surprising that there'd be some additional discovery as part of her original sequencing that she didn't anticipate she was being tested for. I think what's surprising is that somebody actually kept up with it and thought to actually contact her. That's the part that I think is the most surprising. Uh, and it's different, I think, when you're in a clinical context. Her family history of cancer is incredible. It's amazingly bad. Uh, and so in her particular case, if I were her, I certainly would have wanted my doctors to be on the lookout for any kind of cancer connection in my genome. And do you have an obligation to go back every five years and recheck the patient's genome to see if there's something new that, that should be disclosed? That's going to be a tough one. This is an instance of a doctor saying, you have this gene, so you need to do that. But I could imagine grayer areas. How do you balance the need to keep people informed and the desire to give them good information with the psychological burden of knowing something that might not have a clear answer or solution? Um, you know, in, in the kind of short term, what you have a duty to disclose is more limited to those things that are actionable, not necessarily things that are far off into the future. Mm. There's a question of like, do, should you and do you? And some people would want to know. I, for one, would want to know, even if it was iffy and even if it was equivocal. Um, here's where Hank and I probably disagree about. I think, I think people are very bad at making health decisions. I think most people know very little about genetics. They need help in order to make sense of this. And you know, if it's a health issue, you're peculiarly not likely to be in a great in great shape to make a good decision. You're scared. You're nervous. We talked to Sasha about how she weighed the information that she might get cancer against the certainty that her life would change if she had the procedure. Here's what she told us. You know, one of the things I was afraid of is what if in two years they find something where they can actually monitor for this so I won't have to have it, my stomach removed because it's so drastic. I was so afraid of making a mistake. And so what, what do you think? Do you think Sasha was right to question, well, maybe in a couple of years, this cancer will be more treatable than it is today, or at least diagnosable earlier on? Yeah, I think it's not an obvious and easy choice for anyone, but I think the right answer is that they have the full information available to them to actually decide um, whether or not they want to take a preventive or precautionary approach. And for her, she made the right decision. And it's all going to depend on both the medical circumstances and the personal circumstances. If there's an 80% chance of getting a cancer that is very, very hard to treat and very likely to kill you, um, that's one thing. If there's a 5% chance instead of a 1% chance of getting a cancer that is relatively treatable, that's a very different kind of situation. There's also a booming market of genetic tests that are marketed straight to consumer. Uh, how does the ethical analysis of that 
differ from what we're talking about here that comes through an insurance company with all of the healthcare system attached to it? Well, I think direct-to-consumer genetic testing is an exciting field because it gives people direct access to information about themselves and does so more cheaply and in a more easily accessible way than going through a physician's office. And so, you know, you can get a kit that's sent to you at home, you can spit into a tube and send it off. You can get a a lot of information back about different predispositions and risk. And I think it promises a way to democratize information and give people direct access to information, but it also potentially increases the likelihood of genetic literacy as people start to seek to understand what that information means. And that I think is exciting, but, you know, but it raises the kind of ethical calculus for many people, such as Hank. I think Hank calls himself a health exceptionalist. Hank, is this the 21st century equivalent of centuries ago, believing that only priests should have access to books? Or alternatively, is this the equivalent of saying only licensed physicians should be able to write prescriptions or only licensed surgeons should be able to perform operations? Information can be more powerful and more damaging than a scalpel. If we can reliably predict that many people will not be able to use the information well, not because they're lacking in intelligence, but because they don't have the background or because they're not in a good emotional state to try to evaluate everything, then I think requiring that there be resources available to them to help guide them through that decision is every bit as sensible as limiting prescriptions to physicians. There's way more data on the genetic makeup of white people in America than people of color. Is there work being done in the field to make this science more inclusive? Yes. There is an effort to try to diversify these populations significantly and to collect data from far more individuals in order to both be able to um, improve the predictive value, but also to see if there are differences by different regions and, you know, kind of different genetic inheritance patterns that may have occurred in different areas of the world. So let me ask, just taking host's privilege here, I'm a relatively healthy person without huge warning signs in my family history. I've got good insurance. Should I get my genome sequenced? Do I think you should do it? Yes, I do. If you're curious about your genome, I don't think that you're going to learn anything earth shattering about your likelihood of future diseases. You may find- I hope I don't. (laughs) Well, you probably won't. I mean, family history is in general, pretty informative. You know, one- Thing that I caution some people about is neither your employer nor your health insurance can make choices about you or discriminate or change those insurance um, decisions or your employment decisions based on genetic information. But uh, that doesn't mean, for example, that life insurance couldn't make those decisions based on genetic information. Get the life insurance first, then get it sequenced. Yeah. I mean, really, like get your life insurance first and and then go ahead and do it if you're interested in doing so. But uh, I do think it can be valuable to make sure you have all of your ducks in a row before you undertake genetic testing. Hank, what do you think? Should I get my genome sequenced? Yes, I would do it. But for any medical implications, I'd only do it if I knew I had good genetic counseling. Professor Hank Greeley of Stanford and Nita Farahani of Duke, thank you both for being with us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. They had a a recent COVID update and one of the the juvenile uh, uh, department supervisor, apparently that's how we found out that was exposed, I guess, to her husband having... uh, testing positive for COVID and it comes to find out this is his fourth time getting COVID, right? So these are, uh, to use some metaphors like MAGA, 
Trump supporters because I, I just hear how she's talked about um, voting for Trump and DeSantis and all of that. So, As the death toll from the coronavirus nears one million Americans, we've been exploring why the United States suffered such a terrible loss, especially when compared to other nations that are similar to us. While there are many reasons for this, one of them is that many Americans have not wanted to be vaccinated. William Brangham examines that part of the story. Judy, early in the pandemic, people died from COVID in big cities and small towns. They died in blue states and in red states at roughly equal rates. But once the vaccines were rolled out, that started to change. According to Pew Research, from late last year on, COVID deaths in the most pro-Trump counties in America, the red line here, were about 180% of what they were in the most pro-Biden counties, the blue line. That disparity exists in large part because vaccination has become a deeply partisan issue. Many argue that our failure to get more Americans to take these safe, free, and largely life-saving vaccines has cost this country tens of thousands of lives. The live photo of him just asking what and putting his hands on his hips, I don't know, it's just, it's so him. <laughs> Katie Lane says her dad, Patrick, was the best dad in the world, the kid who never grew up. This one right here, we're in, we're in the drive-thru. My dog is in his lap. Patrick worked for Boeing in Washington State. Katie, who's now a junior at Washington State University, says her dad knew the pandemic was real, but he was reluctant to get the vaccine, and he kept putting it off. He also repeated a lot of misinformation, that the vaccines could cause infertility for her, that there were likely hidden side effects. He watched some YouTubers. Fox News was an occasional YouTube clip channel he watched, stuff like that. For some reason, with this vaccine, people were telling you not to get it. For, that, for some reason, that stuck with my dad, and that's, that's ultimately why I didn't choose to. August 12th, 2021, he took a day off work and moved me into my first apartment at college. And the next morning, he gave me a big hug, and he said, I'm really proud of you, Katie Bug. And he, he walked out my front door, hopped in that U-Haul, and that's the last time I ever saw him alive. A few weeks later, Patrick Lane got COVID and died in the ICU at a local hospital. Liz Hamill studies public opinion at the Kaiser Family Foundation, where they've been tracking Americans' attitudes about the COVID vaccine. In December of 2020, when Americans were asked if they would get a free, safe COVID vaccine, around 15% of respondents said, no matter what, no. That's not unusual compared to past polls, but who that group is has changed. One of the things that really stands out is the partisan divide in who's getting vaccinated and not. We find that people who identify as Democrats are vastly more likely to be vaccinated compared to people who identify as Republicans. 61% of unvaccinated people in America today are Republican. It's now the single most reliable predictor of vaccination status. But this wasn't the case with prior vaccines. Multiple polls over the last few years showed majorities believing in the value of the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine and bipartisan uptake of the flu vaccine. The Kaiser Foundation's data hints at why this partisan divide over COVID vaccines emerged. Strong majorities of Democrats say they trust these mainstream news sources for information about COVID-19. 
The only source that nearly half of Republicans trusted was Fox News. This is yet another attempt to impeach the president. From the start of the pandemic, many of Fox's top anchors said the threat from COVID was being exaggerated to harm President Trump. Democrats and their media cronies have decided to weaponize fear and also weaponize suffering to improve their chances against Trump in November. They're scaring the living hell out of people, and I, I see it again as like, oh, let's bludgeon Trump with this new hoax. People who have chosen not to get the vaccine are, most of them say they're not at all worried about getting sick from COVID. A majority of them believe that the news media is exaggerating the seriousness of the pandemic. And when the vaccines were developed, Fox gave primetime coverage to the baseless claims that they didn't work and were, in fact, harming people. The mRNA COVID vaccines need to be withdrawn from the market now. No one should get them. No one should get boosted. No one should get double boosted. They are a dangerous and ineffective product at this point. So it affects you personally. You don't know. Now I know. Not being able to breathe is a scary thing. We heard some of these fears firsthand in a COVID emergency room at Baton Rouge General Hospital last July. 49-year-old Robert Wilson didn't think the virus was much to worry about. 600,000 Americans had died at that point. He hadn't been vaccinated. Wasn't political. Um, it's just I didn't figure I was going to need it. Because nobody really knows the long term of this vaccine. People are scared of it. Seeing this large number of unvaccinated people coming through your doors, is that frustrating to you? Does it just, you just think that's just the way our society is? Like, how do you square that? Uh, I, I, I try not to dwell on it too much. Um, Why not? Because it does frustrate. It, 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 there, there is a little bit of we shot ourselves in our foot. Um, I'm not mad at people who, who didn't vaccinate and, and I understand a lot of it. I mean, there was so much misinformation out there, and, and, and the country is so polarized. Kaiser's research found that people who chose not to get vaccinated were also very open to incorrect information about the pandemic. There was a tendency to believe many multiple pieces of misinformation. So, for instance, believing things like um, the government is hiding uh, deaths related to the COVID vaccine, um, believing that the vaccines contain a microchip or that they cause infertility. So there was a strong correlation between vaccination status and belief in some of this misinformation. I mean, a lot of the misinformation and conspiracy theories about vaccines online are accessed by people who already aren't going to get vaccinated. The University of Miami's Joseph Yuzinski studies conspiracy theories. He argues Thank you. the partisan divide over COVID vaccines is also because of the type of Republican that was drawn to Donald Trump. President Trump built a coalition of conspiracy-minded people, and he was doing that with conspiratorial rhetoric, but he even engaged in misinformation about vaccines, claiming on Twitter at one point, long before he ran for president, that uh, vaccines caused autism. Both the president and I are vaxxed, and uh, did you get the booster? Yes. I got it, too. Okay, so... Um, don't, 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 don't. And when he makes efforts now to say that he got the shot and people should get it, he gets booed by his own crowd because these are the people that he sought to bring around him. So their mind just isn't going to change at this point just because he says to go get it. 
Do you think that there was any way that you could have persuaded your dad to get vaccinated sooner? I don't think that there was. I I tried really hard. I I don't think there's anything I could have done more. Millions of Americans have now lost a loved one to this virus, and so many of those deaths didn't have to occur. For Katie Lane, the coming commemoration for the million lives lost is for others to do. She just wishes her dad was still around. That one million is a huge deal. But that one in that one million is it's been worth more to me than the other 999,000. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm William Brangham. Instead of saying these people are making some excellent workers because they're tough and all like that, they say they make some excellent slaves, you know. They had the incorrect position going in. They could have very easily taken the other route. Say, no, they'll be co-workers, you know, work side by side. And all of us working together, we can get it done. Could have told Indians that. Same thing. Some of them did start off with, but then they got an attitude. Say, no, we're going to take it all. We're going to leave you nothing. Right. Indians said, well, you know, I thought we were going to share. I mean, you know, that's what we sat down at Thanksgiving, I mean, you know, and say we all work together and all like that. Well, I don't think that's a good idea. I think I need to. I think I, what I need to do is going back to giving you a good whipping sheet. We got more land than we can take care of and whatnot. So, I mean, we welcome you and all like that. Well, no, I'm going to take it all. <laughs> Give you a bottle of whiskey. That's what you're going to get out of the deal. Right. <laughs> wow. And that's wow. what they did. And they admit that they did it. They wrote books about it, bragged about it. Yeah, how many Indians were killed today, you know? Only good Indians are dead Indians. The federal government detailed for the first time today the brutality and treatment that Native American children suffered when beginning in the 1800s, they were forcibly moved into U.S. boarding schools. Leaders of different tribes and communities spelled out a litany of horrors that they say led to a cultural genocide that still impacts Native Americans to this day. Amna Nawaz looks at what the investigation found. Judy, between 1819 and 1969, thousands of Native American, Alaskan Native, and Hawaiian Native children attended these U.S. government schools, part of a system of over 400 facilities spread out across 37 states or then territories. More than 500 children died while attending. Kids as young as four were forcibly removed from their families, transported across the country in some cases to schools where they were banned from speaking their language, forced to do manual labor, and suffered physical and sexual abuse. Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland spoke today about her own connection to those schools during a difficult and emotional press conference. 
The fact that I am standing here today as the first Indigenous Cabinet Secretary is testament to the strength and determination of Native people. I am here because my ancestors persevered. I stand on the shoulders of my grandmother and my mother, and the work we will do with the Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative will have a transformational impact on the generations who follow. Also at that event was our guest, Deborah Parker. She is CEO of the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition and a member of the Tulalip Tribe in Washington. The coalition works with the government on this report. Deborah, welcome to the News Hour, and thank you for making the time. We could hear it there in Secretary Holland's voice. I heard it in your voice when you were speaking earlier today, too. It was difficult. And I wonder if you can just tell me what it was like in that moment, what it felt like in the room to finally be able to come forward and share these findings. You know, in that moment, it was like a, a release of extreme amount of sorrow and, and grief, but also this feeling of, um, this feeling of pride that, that we're here today. We're in Washington, D.C. We're at our na nation's capital. You know, I'm sitting next to an indigenous woman from the Laguna Pueblo, known as the U.S. Secretary Interior, Deb Holland, and we're here to share a story, to share a truth that has not been told for generations. The feeling, the enormous feeling of that it has impacted so many of us for generations, and it's time that we tell the story. It starts with this interior report on the, the U.S. boarding schools and how uh, we've been impacted by this federal government on, on the, the lives of Indigenous children and families. And we should note that this first report is, is volume one. There will be more findings from the investigation to come, but specifically this work found marked and unmarked burial sites at 53 different schools, the remains of, of hundreds of children who died in U.S. government custody. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the details uncovered in this investigation. What kind of treatment did those children go through at those schools? How did they die? So many of our children were, were taken and never returned. We know that some of them were, were, were murdered. Some of them were, were buried on, on residential school, boarding school sites and near rivers, on hill sites. <laughs> the stories are uh, so enormous and and we know these stories uh, from, from our relatives. We know these stories so well, but we're waiting for the federal government. We're waiting for churches, for others to tell the story as well. And, you know, when, when we talk about uh, the, the pain, these were beatings, uh, tortures. Uh, children, just the other day, uh, a member from the Alaska Native Tribe shared with me that uh, his mother was... Uh, put in the basement of one of the boarding schools. She was chained to a heater and she was beaten daily. And so the hearing these stories, knowing that, um, that our relatives uh, suffered so enormously is, uh, is a lot to carry. You have mentioned, we heard Secretary Holland mention this idea of intergenerational trauma, that there is a lasting impact and legacy 
after the, what children went through, what a generation went through in those schools. And the reports show, right, today the disparities are absolutely there. When you look at the American Indian and Alaska Native communities, you see some of the highest rates of poverty and premature death and suicide, some of the lowest rates of graduation. So I want to ask you to connect the dots for us. Do you believe that this effort, this investigation, it can help to close some of those gaps? What's your hope? Absolutely. Um, the, the hope is that we find healing. The hope is that we come together as, as a nation to, to not only tell of these, these truths, but also to begin to heal together. And, you know, our communities have known this truth for generations. It's time that the United States government understands these truths. It's time that we listen. It's time that we hold space for our traditional elders, for our our keepers of our language. It, it's just time that we support tribal nations and indigenous peoples who are um, continue to suffer. And we suffer because when, when our children attend these schools, they're not taught this language. They're not taught our history. We're, we're written out of the history books. It, you know, the goal was uh, kill, kill, kill the Indian, save the man. And so for, for so many of us growing up, in, in the United States, all we wanted to be was the very best self that we could be. We wanted to carry our traditions. We wanted, we want to speak our languages, um, but for our children and our grandparents, that was beaten out of them. That, that for me to, to take a class, a Lashutsi class from my tribe, I, I sat there and cried. I, it was so difficult and I couldn't understand why. But my father shared with me that grandmother cried. She she tried to sing her song, but grandfather would say, don't sing. They'll arrest you. They'll come and get you. So these, these were uh, these are moments that were so painful for our family. And, and they were meant for us to forget our, our songs. It was meant for us to forget our dances and our ceremonies and our language. So this, this genera generational pain exists very deep within so many of our, our relatives across across uh, what these lands are now called, you know, United States. This is our, our way of life. Deb, you mentioned today that you're not going to stop advocating until there's a full accounting from the U.S. government. So what does that mean to you? Well, it, it means that records, the records go back to the families, that tribal nations are able to find where their children, the missing children, the missing and murdered children, um, that the, the government uh, apologizes to these nations, but not only apologizes, that they make amends. And, you know, I don't have the recipe for that, that amends. It, it will be up to each tribal nation, each uh, indigenous person who has suffered at the hands of this colonial system. We're just getting to the point where we're telling our story. And I think the rest of that will come as we listen to our elders, as we listen to the stories. That is Deborah Parker, CEO of the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. Thank you for your time. Mr. Pitto claims the version of nigger ending in gur is the racial slur, but that he was using a different version of the word ending in ga that means the same as buddy or best pal. He insists that he was using the friendly version of the N-word to better relate to Riley. I used the word. I admit it. I thought there was a difference between nigger and nigga. I, I thought I understood this whole thing, but I guess I don't. I need help. Whenever I hear the rappers, they say, nigga, 
It's in all the music. Look, look, look. Rap songs that use the word nigga in a positive way. There's tons of them. Look, real nigga roll call. Niggas bleed. Jigga my nigga. Niggas for life. Real niggas don't die. Shame on a nigga. Suck a nigga. Ain't no nigga. Was planning to sue Duval County Public Schools after she alleges students and a teacher called her son the N-word. As Action News Jack's Gretchen Kernbach explains, the family says alleged racist behavior began earlier this year. I'm just baffled, to be honest, that a school can allow this to go on. Elise Beecham alleges her sixth grade son has been the victim of racism at Mandarin Middle School for months. In this notice of intent to sue, she claims it started in March when several students repeatedly called him the N-word. It upsets me a lot, and it upsets him as well. The document states the school failed to hold these students accountable when he reported it. The school has failed repeatedly to hold these students, calling him the N-word, using racism, battering him, and physically attacking him accountable. Furthermore, the document states when he told his teacher about it, matters got worse. She told him, essentially, that... Why does it even bother him? Why does it even bother him if he's called the N-word? Because black people can refer to themselves as the N-word. Beecham's attorney says his teacher then addressed him by the N-word. And she said to him, N-word, you don't have the privilege to discriminate against white people because black people are inferior to white people. Beecham says she brought complaints to the principal and the dean about the matter. The teacher was not fired. Beecham's son was removed from the classroom instead. Now Beecham and her attorney say they want to hold everyone involved accountable for violating Beecham's son's 14th Amendment rights and Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. For local coverage, you can count on in Mandarin. I'm Gretchen Kernbach, Action News Jack. College don't mean shit. Y'all niggas. And you gonna be niggas forever. Just like us. Niggas. President of Delaware State University, which is a historically black college, is expressing outrage after a bus of his lacrosse players was stopped and searched in Georgia. It happened at the end of last month when sheriff's deputies pulled over the bus as it traveled back home from a game in Florida. Their bus was initially stopped for an alleged traffic violation, but it then turned into a search for drugs. Members of the lacrosse team say they were being racially profiled. Police body cam video of the incident was released. The reason I'm sorry is for a left lane violation. This is the moment Liberty County Sheriff's deputies pulled over a bus of women's lacrosse players last month. After talking to the driver, the sheriff's deputy pokes his head into the bus. Ladies, how are y'all doing? When he returns to the car, he makes this remark to a fellow deputy. There's a bunch of dang schoolgirls on the bus. It's probably some weed. Maybe. The deputies then inform the driver they're going to search the luggage under the bus. One deputy brings out a drug-sniffing dog. They return to the bus to explain what's happening. There are times where we end up finding some children that are missing from their family. We find large amounts of money that nobody knows anything about. Okay? Or large amounts of cocaine, marijuana, heroin, methamphetamines, anything like that, okay? If there is anything in y'all's luggage, we're probably going to find it. Okay? I'm not looking for a little bit of marijuana, but I'm pretty sure you guys as chaperones are probably going to be disappointed in you if uh, we find any. The deputies proceed to search the bags going through the women's personal belongings. At one point, they pull out a wrapped gift. 
What is that? Your aunt gave it to you? Mm-hmm. You don't know what it is? No, I didn't open it yet. I was waiting until I got back to school. I'll go open it now. No, what did, what did she tell you it was? She didn't tell me anything. Okay, where did you where did you get it from? My aunt. In I mean, Georgia. In, in Georgia? Mm-hmm. We're going to open it. Okay. Um, and we're going to find out exactly what it is. Okay. But however, this is... This is the type of stuff that we look for. After around 20 minutes of searching, the deputies find no contraband. All right, ladies, thank you. We're going to get out of here. You guys enjoy the rest of your trip. At a press conference yesterday, Sheriff William Bowman said multiple vehicles were stopped that morning and that his deputies followed the rules. The deputy informed the passengers that the search would be completed. This is the same protocol that is expected to be used no matter the race, gender, age, or destination of the passenger. He later said this. No personal items on the bus or person were searched. The president of Delaware State University, Tony Allen, says the incident has left him incensed. He said, quote, we do not intend to let this or any other incident like it pass idly. We are prepared to go wherever the evidence leads us. We have video. We have allies. Perhaps more significantly, we have the coverage, excuse me, the courage of our convictions. That's, totally that's nice just so wrong on so many levels. And at the end, the officer says, enjoy the rest of your day when you've just been stopped and just questioned yeah, how and humiliated that, that way. So, so, they were all very cooperative. They were all very cooperative, very cooperative because yeah. uh, they, they believe that, you know, as the coach of the team, Ms. Jenkins said, that uh, things could have gone Wrongly, yes, very yeah. they had not uh, been very as quickly. cooperative as they were. Um, the other thing that I just want to point out that the sheriff's department says that uh, when they pulled the bus over, they weren't able to see who was inside because the windows were tinted. Yeah, so, so that's like just most, that's like what the sheriff's deputy, right? Like so I ninety five is what it is, and if you pull over a bus, fine, you might have reason to. But once you get inside, I spent four years of my life on college uh, uh, so buses like that, going back and forth. As soon as you poke your head in, you know exactly what it is, right? And it's no longer a, a probable cause here's situation. The, thing, the trauma. Uh, many of these young uh, women had never had an interaction with police in their lives. And this is the first interaction that they're going to have with a police officer. In the long list of of people who should be upset about this, the people of Georgia should be upset because your your officers have better things to do. What are they doing on that bus? To say thank you, have a nice day. How about you end it with, I apologize for wasting your time. Exactly. All right, thank you, Vlad. We appreciate you. We'll be right back. Exactly. Little brother, I heard y'all ain't hitting in New York. Word. I heard Y'all ain't hitting at L.A. Word, word. I heard y'all ain't hitting in North Carolina. North Carolina. The Citizens Review Board voted 8-2 to two Thursday that the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department should have disciplined officers who wrongly detained a woman last summer. Up until yesterday, the board had only voted against the police two other times in its 25-year history. WFAE's Sarah D'Elia was at the hearing and has this report. Before yesterday's hearing, attorney Darlene Harris was nervous, and with good reason. The Citizens Review Board had only ruled against the police twice since its inception in 1997. The CRB is an advisory board that can make recommendations to the police chief, but not enact any disciplinary action itself. I'm feeling anxious. Uh, I really want the best outcome for my client. Um, I think any time before these, you kind of just do everything you can to prepare and, and hope that the message gets across. The message Harris hoped to convey was that her client, 29-year-old Jasmine Horn, was wrongly detained by police last June when they mistook her for the suspect of a violent crime, and that the officers who took part in that incident should have been disciplined. 
the suspect police were looking for was also a black woman who had a similar sounding name. During the incident, an officer approached her, his gun drawn. She was handcuffed, searched, and placed in the back of a police car while she breathed heavily, asking what was going on. Horn initially filed a complaint with CMPD, but an internal affairs investigation found the police acted in good faith based on the information they had at the time. So Horn appealed that decision with the Citizens Review Board. Yesterday's evidentiary hearing, the second part in the appeals process, functioned much like a trial with evidence and testimony presented throughout the day. It was held in a closed session, which meant media wasn't allowed back into the room until it was time to announce how the board voted. The board's chair, Tanya Jameson, read the decision. In an 8-2 vote, the board found police chief Johnny Jennings erred in exonerating the two officers. The board found the officers should have faced some disciplinary actions, making this the third case the CRB has voted in favor of the complainant. Then the board quickly adjourned. Attorney Darlene Harris couldn't get into specifics about what was said during the hearing, but did say there were many missteps that occurred during the incident that were seen by the board. I think that, you know, to me it says that the error was so clear, you know, that the the issue was so bad that they just, they couldn't, they couldn't rule any other way. The board will make both disciplinary and policy recommendations, but it's up to the police to decide if those recommendations will be shared with the public. And the police chief does not have to take the recommendations unless he is overruled by the city manager. Hopefully this time is different. You know, this is a a new chief. This is a new administration. So hopefully this time will be different. After a full eight-hour hearing, both Harris and Horn were exhausted, happy but clearly tired and worn from the hours of questions, evidence, and reliving that day last June. WFAE was the only outlet Horn agreed to speak to yesterday, and there were a lot of feelings that came up for her during the hearing. Confusion, frustration on the incident and what happened, and um, procedures that could have been made that weren't made, and precautions Um, before I was detained. And knowing that the chief could decide not to take any of the board's recommendations worries her. Non-action is an action, and people have to decide where they stand at the end of the day. They have to think about what kind of mark they're going to leave as leaders. And she says if someone finds themselves in a similar situation to hers... She hopes her story will inspire them to file a complaint in order to have a voice. For WFAE News, I'm Sarah D'Elia. The Turner Diaries. It sold over half a million copies. Who do you think is buying it? Eric Rudolph, the Olympic bomber. Wade Page, who shut up the Sea Temple. Larry Ford, developing typhoid and cholera. William Carr with the cyanide bomb. Anthrax, ricin, botulism, C4, IEDs. I could go on like this for hours, and all of them are white supremacists. center of an 11-day standoff with federal authorities in the 90s, Randy Weaver has died. His family announced his death on social media this week. He's known for what unfolded in the remote area of Idaho called Ruby Ridge. 
Ever since then, that name and Weavers have been rallying cries on the radical right. Here to walk us through the legacy of this is NPR's domestic extremism correspondent, Odette Youssef. Odette, Randy Weaver had taken his family to live in an isolated, mountainous place to really just retreat from society. So quickly walk us through the events as they unfolded. Well, back in 1992, federal authorities were looking at a neo-Nazi organization in Idaho called Aryan Nations. The Weavers had gone to some meetings of that group, and federal authorities tried to recruit Randy Weaver as an undercover agent. He said no, and so they alleged that he had illegally sold firearms, and they charged him with this. He said that he was set up. So then Weaver didn't show up for a scheduled court hearing. It turns out he'd been given the wrong date. And so law enforcement ended up circling his house that August, and things quickly got out of hand. Uh, The Weavers were heavily armed, and to this day, it's disputed a, you know, who fired first. But a federal marshal and Weaver's 14-year-old son were shot dead, and then the next day, Weaver's wife was killed. Um, The standoff ended with Weaver surrendering, but he was acquitted of everything except for failing to appear in court for that original firearms charge. And the Weaver family ended up getting over $3 million in compensation from the government. Why was this such an important moment in the evolution of the radical right? Well, here's how Heidi Byrick explains it. She's with the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. It powered the anti-government movement, the kinds of militias that we think of, paramilitary organizations who believe that the government is involved in conspiracies. They're going to come take your guns. They're going to round you up, your family up. It sparked that movement, and actually in the 1990s, they hit the highest number of these kinds of organizations in 1996 with a count of 858 of them. We didn't hit a high of those kinds of numbers again until during the Obama administration. So, A, this really was a key moment in the growth of the anti-government militia movement. And Odette, as I recall, didn't the, the Waco siege happen not long after Ruby Ridge? That's right. You know, another standoff with federal authorities, this time in Texas, where 76 Branch Davidians ultimately died in a fire. Uh, Both of these really fed a paranoia on the far right about a a tyrannical government. And they both provided inspiration to Timothy McVeigh, for example, who bombed a federal building in Oklahoma City just a couple of years later. Today, we see that kind of anti-government conspiratorial thinking is really extended into a much more mainstream part of the right. You know, we see it with QAnon. We saw it at the Capitol on January 6th. And in many ways, that thinking really took off with Ruby Ridge. And what has the legacy of Ruby Ridge done for uh, federal authorities? Well, they've become much more sensitive to how quickly things can escalate with these heavily armed groups. Um, Heidi Byrick said, we don't really see them circle compounds anymore. You know, instead, they try to catch people off of those properties, and they're just much more patient in their approach to these groups. But, you know, we're seeing that distrust of government has only grown despite that. And Byrick says this distrust in some ways is more dangerous today uh, because it threatens to erode our democratic institutions. That's NPR's Odette Youssef. Odette, thanks a lot. Thank you. Five of California's largest law enforcement agencies have a serious problem with bias against women, people of color, immigrants, LGBTQ people. That's according to a scathing report recently released from California's auditor. The report looked at the L.A. Sheriff's Department, the police departments of San Jose, San Bernardino and Stockton and the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. 
And it says those departments did little to investigate their officers' biased conduct or to try to prevent future problems. Well, that bias can be reinforced or even encouraged when officers are trained. A Reuters investigation found that some police trainers have ties to far-right extremist groups, and they're teaching hundreds of officers every year. Julia Hart is a national affairs correspondent for Reuters and was one of the reporters on that investigation. Welcome, Julia. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, you begin your story with a man named Richard Whitehead, and he's a a private law enforcement consultant in Idaho, and he has some pretty fringe views. Tell us about him. Yeah, so Richard Whitehead is uh, subscribes to a range of far right views and movements. He's um, when he ran for sheriff in his county a couple years ago, he actually handed out cards that identified him as an oath keeper, uh, and he was in this membership database of oath keepers that was released a few months ago. He also did campaign appearances with his local three percenter militia chapter. Uh, And he ran on an explicitly constitutional sheriff platform, uh, which is a a movement that sort of uh, believes sheriffs are the supreme law enforcement authority in their jurisdictions, more powerful even than the president of the United States, and that they should just ignore any law that they consider unconstitutional. Can you elaborate on that, this constitutional sheriff policy? Where did that come from? And how many sheriffs and sheriff's deputies ascribe to it? Yeah, it's uh, it's been around for quite a while. Um, the Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association is the main body that's organized around it. It was founded by a former Arizona sheriff named Richard Mack, and it's been uh, picking up a lot of steam in the past couple of years, largely because of the, the pandemic and the Uh, COVID-19 safety measures that were mandated uh, by the government, which many uh, adherents of the constitutional sheriff philosophy considered uh, unconstitutional. So there were efforts by sheriffs around the country to uh, just defy the lockdown mandates, um, you know, safety measures, social distancing, masking, and so forth. Uh, and, uh, you know, encourage folks in their counties to do so as well. So this guy, Richard Whitehead, he conducts private trainings for police departments. Where does he work? Well, he's based in Idaho, but he has held trainings in 12 different states over the past four years, and he's reached at least 560 police officers and other public safety workers uh, in those trainings, according to public records that we reviewed from the departments that hired him. And do those departments know that he has these views? It's unclear whether all of them do. At least one uh, county sheriff's office, actually, that hired him Uh, the sheriff himself was unaware until we spoke that uh, Whitehead had these views. In fact, this is the sheriff in Spokane County, Washington, uh, which is just across the border from the county where Whitehead ran for sheriff. And uh, this Spokane County sheriff vehemently decried Whitehead's views during that campaign, you know, considered him part of this lunatic fringe but didn't realize until I spoke with him that his own office had hired Whitehead to hold trainings. 
uh, it gives you a sense of how, um, you know, sometimes these trainers can be hired even without the knowledge of the, of the top law enforcement official. And so what is the danger here? Because is it possible that they just keep their views in, to themselves and their private lives are private and they conduct themselves professionally when they're actually just training officers and how to use force and how to behave in the field? Well, one of the ways in which the extremist views that they hold seeps into that training is by imparting this idea that law enforcement officers are under more threat than ever before, that they're, they should be constantly hypervigilant for attacks and uh, you know, danger to themselves from others, which that sort of you know, what experts call a warrior mentality uh, is something that they believe leads to increased police brutality. And it's something that even just as a philosophy can be conveyed through these trainings more effectively than, you know, the regular techniques or skills that are being passed on. So we talked with policing experts, some of whom are former law enforcement themselves, who said that that sharing of a philosophy or an ethos uh, can be you know, sometimes the thing that really sticks in the minds of officers who take these trainings. How widespread is this? Well, we identified five trainers who had made their views very clear. Uh, so through social media um, and you know other public forums, it's also, it's unclear how much of the total picture we've actually revealed here though, because we were only able to find the ones that, again, are public about their views. Um, since the piece published, we've heard from readers talking about concerns they have over law enforcement uh, trainers in their areas with you know, similar views. And so I, I'm, I'm sure it's bigger than what we found. All right, Julia, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Julia Hart, National Affairs Correspondent for Reuters. See, I love my hometown. I'm from Oakland, California. And I love Oakland. And everything I learned from Oakland. I learned how to be street smart. I learned who to hang around and who not to hang around. You know, just to go to school and come home every day was like a mission. You know what I'm saying? So right now I could go anywhere in the world and I'm protected by God, but... But you know, I could go to your hood and hang out. I could hang out in Watts, Crenshaw, New York, Harlem, anywhere in Cleveland, New Orleans, any project in the world. I know when you're trying to do something to me, I'll be out on your ass quick. That's from Oakland. Don't get it wrong. I love Oakland, California. Home of the Oakland Raiders. I love Oakland. I love the air in Oakland. I love the people in Oakland. I love the schools in Oakland. I love the, the musicians in Oakland. I love the preachers in Oakland. I love the teachers in Oakland. I love everybody in Oakland. But see, I just had to leave. A federal judge yesterday ruled that Oakland, California's police can take a big step toward ending nearly two decades of federal oversight. 
The judge ruled that Oakland can now enter a one-year probationary period after meeting dozens of reform measures required in the wake of a police abuse scandal. But critics say the fact that basic improvements took 20 years is scandalous in itself. From Oakland, NPR's Eric Westervelt reports. Federal monitoring stemmed from abuses surrounding a West Oakland anti-gang unit who called themselves the Riders. Scores of victims 22 years ago alleged the Riders routinely planted drugs on suspects and dished out beatdowns alongside their falsified police reports on lawful arrests and obstruction of justice. A rookie officer blew the whistle and the Riders scandal was born. 119 Oakland victims filed suit. But back then, civil rights attorneys Jim Channon and John Burris made it clear they wanted more than a settlement and money for their clients. Burris says they saw the rogue cop scandal as an opportunity to try to change an Oakland police culture of impunity. To take a real good look, figure out where it was that these problems originated from. Because I was very much interested in the issue about racial profiling. We saw that um, people were being stopped. We were interested in the force questions, what kind of force was being used, how was it being recorded, what kind of investigations were taking place in the internal affairs. And that was a big deal. Slowly, very slowly, Oakland has checked off more than 50 federally mandated reforms. The OPD improved its use of force policies and practices, reduced racial profiling and traffic stops, and more. Allegations and payouts for brutality and excessive force are down dramatically. While acknowledging there's much work still to do, the city's mayor welcomed the end of federal oversight as a sign of real progress. Progress that Oakland Chief Leron Armstrong says is sustainable. He's been chief here for just over 15 months. I think there's 15 months where we haven't had a scandal or any issues come out of the department that would cause anybody to be concerned about our ability to remain in compliance and practice constitutional policing is the beginning of us building a new history. But many see any progress and that new history as fragile. And it took 20 years. Rashida Grenage is with Oakland's Coalition for Police Accountability. It's shameful. It's shameful that it has taken this long. The first federal monitoring team quit en masse, convinced Oakland was incapable of real change. The glacial pace of reform underscores the department's deep resistance to improving, says lawyer Jim Channon, the other lead civil rights attorney who brought the writer's case. I would say the first nine years, there was zero progress. And then the last 10, they've come up to the point where they're now on the cusp of compliance. And that compliance is seen by many as precarious. The city's gone through 11 police chiefs in just over 20 years. Last year, homicides here soared. Today, Oakland officers are leaving the department in record numbers. And there have been half a dozen new scandals since the writer's case, including in 2016 when multiple OPD officers were criminally charged for sexually abusing an underage girl and continued to exploit her after she turned 18. The city settled for nearly a million dollars and officers were fired. An independent report ruled the department failed to adequately investigate those sex crimes, a violation of federal task number five. It's always been lawyers, journalists, or victims who've exposed OPD's corruption, and lawyer Channon is worried that when federal monitors pack up, the backsliding could set in. We've gone 20 years. They have a perfect record of never discovering and remedying a single scandal on their own. So I'm concerned about that. 
That's bad. It is worrisome. Rashida Grenage with the Coalition for Police Accountability is worried too. But she says the creation a few years ago of the city's independent civilian-run police commission is one key safeguard to protect against relapse since the Riders scandal. Trust but verify, right? We have a police commission that will verify that they are in compliance and will take the necessary steps to make sure that if they fall out of compliance, that there are repercussions. Repercussions like when the commission fired police chief Ann Kirkpatrick in 2020. She's now fighting her dismissal in court. Activists who've pushed for greater racial justice after George Floyd's murder at the knee of a Minneapolis policeman say any incremental progress in Oakland was not the work of federal monitors or lawyers. It was the work of the people in the streets that forced OPD to shift. Kat Brooks is co-founder and director of the Anti-Police Terror Project. She's not convinced OPD has changed much at all. A culture of violence and recklessness, she alleges, simply runs too deep. If you go into East Oakland, they are still profiled and they are still harassed and tormented by OPD. So right on, I'm glad they've ticked off all the boxes. But they are not a police department that this community trusts or should trust. After two decades, the last of the 51 reforms was improving racial disparities in disciplinary policy, as more black officers were facing discipline than their white counterparts. In the end, none of the officers in the Riders scandal was convicted. The city paid out about $11 million to 119 people to settle the class action brutality case. And the alleged ringleader of the Riders gang, Officer Frank Vasquez, He skipped bail and fled the country on the eve of his trial. To this day, former Officer Vasquez remains a fugitive, his case open with the FBI. Eric Westervelt, NPR News, Oakland. happened during the first year of the pandemic. The rate of gun homicides rose to a level that has not been seen in more than a quarter of a century. NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce is looking into the new data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Nell, good morning. Good morning. What are the numbers? So it's not great. It's uh, demoralizing and depressing, in fact. This report looked at homicides and suicides that involved guns from 2019 through 2020. It was just a big analysis looking across all kinds of different things, age, gender, race, ethnicity. It looked at small towns and big cities, you know, rural areas. 
And what the researchers found was a striking increase in the gun homicide rate. It's the highest it's been since 1994. Hmm. So in 2020, it was up 35 percent compared to the year before. That equates to about 5,000 more deaths in just one year. Wow. Uh, That's going back to an era when there was way more crime in America, and that's enough deaths that I'm sure it affects every kind of person in America. But are the numbers worse for some people than others? Yes. So the largest increase was seen for black males who were already at a higher risk of gun violence. The gun homicide rate for black boys and young men aged 10 to 24 was more than 21 times as high as the rate for white boys and men in the same age group. Wow. In addition, people living in counties with higher levels of poverty had gun homicide rates that were higher and showed larger increases. But all that said, the gun homicide rate was just up overall in, you know, in cities and rural areas and across all ages and genders. Did the stress from the pandemic cause this? A study like this one can't really tell you the why. Um, There was a lot going on that year. In 2020, for example, there was also a big surge in gun purchases. But when I asked Deborah Howry about the potential causes, she's the acting principal deputy director of the CDC. She told me it's notable that the researchers saw higher rates of both gun homicide and gun suicide in places that are dealing with poverty. When you look at the pandemic, things like job loss, economic stressors, social isolation, these were already hard-hit communities, and so this could have impacted them more. She says addressing those kinds of stressors with things like housing assistance and, you know, tax credits can actually help prevent gun violence. You mentioned suicide there. Let me follow up on that. What does the study say about suicide as opposed to homicide? So the study also looked at guns involved in suicide, and it's worth noting here that most gun deaths in this country are from suicide, not homicide. And what they found is while the overall suicide rate actually went down in 2020, the rate of gun suicides didn't. It didn't change that much, Um, although it did go up in some groups like Native Americans and Alaska Native males. Now, can I just note, uh, it's really interesting uh, and helpful to get this data from the CDC, and I think it's the kind of data that the CDC wasn't allowed to gather once upon a time. How different are things today? Well, they've always been allowed to gather data, um, but what they are doing now that's a little different is that Congress loosened an old restriction and provided some funding. So they're now doing a, a research into ways of preventing gun violence that they probably wouldn't have done before. They're funding about 18 new projects looking at different things. NPR's Nell Greenfield Boyce, thanks so much. And if you or someone you know may be considering suicide, contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 800-273-8255. The Man Race, race, class, class genre, genre, and the dilemmas, dilemmas of black manhood. Tonight we begin with a cold case out of California. 26 years after her boyfriend was found stabbed to death, 48-year-old Jade Benning has been arrested in connection, and it happened right here in Austin. CBS Austin's Lindsay Regis joins us live tonight. Lindsay, you spoke with the U.S. Marshal Service tonight who made that arrest. Yeah, well, we found out this is where the arrest happened at near Benning's home right behind me. She was arrested on May 3rd during a traffic stop. I believe it had gone cold for so long. Uh, I didn't feel like she'd probably have any concern to think that she was the individual wanted 
uh, for this homicide. U.S. Marshals arrested 48-year-old Jade Benning last Tuesday for the murder of Christopher Hervey, who was stabbed to death at age 22 in his California apartment. At the time, Benning told Santa Ana police a black man forced his way into the home and stabbed Hervey. Though detectives followed up on leads, the case went cold until an anonymous letter was sent to the Santa Ana Police Department two years ago, implicating Benning's involvement with the murder. The investigation into Benning also turned up forensic evidence linking her to the crime. The backstory to where the Lone Star Fugitive Task Force got involved was back uh, probably about two years ago. Um, our task force officers there in uh, California uh, reached out to our task force here because they knew that we had ties uh, with the Austin Police Department because we have task force officers uh, from the Austin Police Department. Establishing that communication became key to closing the investigation as far as obtaining the warrant. What we know is that we had a, we had a warrant uh, for, a, for a murder uh, and our job was to go execute that warrant uh, here in Austin. Deputy U.S. Marshal Brandon Fila says members of the Lone Star Fugitive Task Force conducted surveillance before making contact with Benning. During surveillance, we were able to identify a female uh, that fit the physical description of Jade Benning. Um, followed, that, followed that vehicle for quite some time. Uh, you know, it, it went into a school parking lot. Uh, we didn't feel that uh, that was probably the best time to facilitate an arrest. Uh, so we continued surveillance uh, to where we followed her. Uh, away from that school, safest place possible, and effected that arrest on a traffic stop where she was arrested without incident. From there, she was handed over to the Santa Ana detectives on scene. So it's been 26 years since the death of Christopher. What do you have to say to his family who, you know, wants closure? Yeah, I believe, you know, this is, this is the beginning of justice for, that, for those victims. A bond hearing has not been set. Now we reached out to her lawyer for comment, but have yet to hear back. Reporting live, Lindsay Regis, CBS Austin News. The story that he tells about traveling and the privilege that he gets from just being walking is, is mind-blowing. Just mind-blowing. Wow. Wow. Um, I'm not a fan of Tim Wise. I'm, um, I'm not a fan of it either. I'm not cheerleading for him. I'm telling you the truth mm. of the essence of what the man is putting out there that white people can't deny it. Now, I'm not talking about your black mind. Capital One's The Match is back on TNT. NFL legends Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers battle superstars Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes. Watch live June 1st on TNT. Can't wait to go work that with you, Ernie. That's going to be a lot. And a great J.J. Watt. And Josh Allen's going to be on the show. I might just come out there. We we didn't invite your black ass. (laughs) You're not not coming out there. It's like that now. You're not coming. Oh, Josh Allen's on the steam room tomorrow, right? (laughs) Yeah, he is. You can't take off green room jokes to the set. You, you can't just come places. No, you just getting a little too comfortable. No, hey, listen, man. You can't just a little bit too hey, You can't invite yourself I, places. Yeah, I, got, I got to admit, that blind side of me just a bit you there, too. You can't get a little bit too Damn, comfortable, man. You can't invite yourself. You're not invited to the match. No. Hey, Shaq, me and Shaq showing up. Shaq ain't coming. We showing up. Here it is. We going to bring our black. <laughs> <laughs> And now, and now I'm supposed to get through this. Uh, four times in the regular season, the Phoenix Suns lost consecutive games, but never lost more than two in a row. 
They're the only team in the league that can make that claim, and now they'll need to keep that mark intact or they'll find themselves trailing in their series against Dallas. The Mavericks held serve on Sunday, taking both games in their gym, and now we're 2-2, heading to Phoenix on Tuesday. Hey, I got through that. Yes, sir. You're such a, a professional. Lot, a lot to do. Right I appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you got too much. That ain't me, man. That's him, man. Just forget right. where he's at. Most of our fights started over petty disputes like stepped on shoes, flying spitballs, and contested ownership of pens and pencils. But behind our fights, self hatred was clearly visible. Nappy head, nappy head, I catch your ass, you're gonna be dead. You think you black and ugly now? I'm gonna beat you till you purple. You just another nigga to me. I'm gonna show you what I do with niggas like you. You better shut your big blubber lips. We would call each other jungle bunnies and bush boogies. We would talk about each other's ugly big lips and flat noses. We would call each other pickaninnies and nappy-haired so-and-sos. Act your age, not your color, we would tell each other. You're going to thank me when I'm through with you. I'm going to beat you so bad, I'm going to beat the black off of you. Black, black made, made any, any insult, insult worse. worse. When you called somebody a bastard, that was bad. But when you called somebody a black, black bastard... Now that was terrible. In fact, when I was growing up, being called black, period, was grounds for fighting. Who you calling black? Your black Who didn't invite your black ass? Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, May 14, 2000. 22 so i have been told our weekly compensatory call in much obliged everyone for tuning in uh the number to dial 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate the number again seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate this broadcast not for spectators many things to share Number one, top of the list. We have talked for years, right, about police encounters. Mr. Fuller has certainly offered a wealth of great suggestions, as have many other folks, Dr. Cambon and lots of folks fighting, flussing, fleeing, all that good stuff. Dr. Cambon not being out late and all that, even having all of your information on a, a notarized document already together in the vehicle, even having an extra copy of your license so that you can have all that stuff together in a little Ziploc bag. Bang. Efficient, safe, all that good stuff. With regards to Delaware State University, so-called HBCU, and the young ladies on the young scholars, student scholar athletes down in Georgia, right? Uh, And they get stopped by these 
enforcement officers, but I mean, really, just based on what we heard in the video alone, race soldiers, audio for our purposes. Uh, Now, we've talked about this. You get stopped by enforcement officers and it comes time for a search. I will probably say this at least one other time on today's broadcast, but I've said before. Gus T. Renegade, my assessment, my conclusion about racism, white supremacy, what we should be doing to solve this problem is generally very different from most of the other non-white people, individuals classified as black or otherwise in the known universe. And I mean, it's not close. It's they have come to the conclusion that the answer to the problem is, you know, 500,002. And I've come to the conclusion that the answer is Jerusalem. Like that's how far apart we are. Like what? (laughs) Like we do we even have the same question here. Like, Whoa, what is going on? So I've heard that regularly, frequently, almost at a matter of cliche, right? You get stopped by enforcement officers. We got nothing to hide. Feel free. We'll cooperate. Make sure things don't end up being worse. In fact, we had Dr. Niana Rasayan, guest on the program victim of racism he was on we talked about this very subject matter and he said oh yeah you know feel free have a look officer feel free and i told him on the program gus my view that is one of the worst decisions you could make if i had been on that bus as the driver or if i was the lead chaperone so that i could just go talk to the driver and i'll take it from here either or if i was the driver I would let the lead chaperone know exactly what I'm about to say. Tell everybody, be quiet. Don't say a word. Be quiet. He gets on, or they, since it was two of them, they get on. Negros, oh, excuse me, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, what's what's going on here and all that? Okay, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so we just need to take a search. Uh, gentlemen, officers. I know you're out here working hard. We've had the pandemic and everything, and you're doing your best to keep us all safe. Unfortunately, we do not consent to the search of our property, our person, or this coach without a warrant. If you have a warrant or can produce one, we will happily comply. But without a warrant, We do not consent to any searches. Thank you, sirs. And I mean, it would be about that's 99%. That's the way that I would have said it. Showtime. We're not in Missouri now. Warrant. We hang out here for three hours. And I mean, if they do all that, oh, that's what you want us to get a warrant. Uh, So I know you're working hard because I don't have an army, right? I'm in Georgia. I mean, hey. I'm in Georgia. So-called Atlanta child murders, long hit Forsyth County. Lots of things we can think about with Georgia. I know where I am. System of white supremacy. I don't have an army behind me. Officers, I know you're just doing your job, keeping us safe. But without a warrant, we do not consent to any searches of our person, property or this coach. And that is that. Now, they said, hey, we didn't want this thing to escalate or go worse. We didn't know what could happen. Hey, now, 
we hey hindsight is twenty twenty, but I mean not really because I've been saying this for years. In fact, Dr. Rasayan came on the program and said this in 2016. I said the exact same thing then six years ago that I just said now. And he said, we're saying the same thing. And I said, no, <laughs> we are not. Say, what did I just say? They're saying the answer is 500,005. I'm saying the answer is Jerusalem. You're saying, oh, go ahead, officer. Feel free. Search the cabin or search the car. I have nothing to hide. I'm saying under no circumstances do you do that. You say, I do not consent. Now, they say, hey, who do you think you are, nigga? I'm going to search this car right now. I'm not consenting. And that's it. You don't, you know, jump in the way. No fighting. Everything else still applies. So you just say that. And that's all you need because they have lots of cases just on that basis. It gets thrown out, whatever, you know, they even if they do find, you know, something and that is a constitutional violation that is really serious, undue search and seizure. So, I mean, hey, I, I wish they had at least one person. I know some people think that that's risky and that's not the way to go. I'm of the opinion. We heard the audio of them saying, oh, we got these young negras. Hmm probably going to have some of that wacky tobacco. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Now we, Hey, it's the Duke lacrosse players getting strippers already had arrest records for violence and what have you. It is what underage drinking and all the rest of it. I've seen that. Is that the, the sort of attitude that they take that they go, well, we need to search this house right now. Come on. But with that sort of attitude, that's exactly why you do not want them. Oh, we get to snoop through an entire. But I mean, and the disgrace and all that, that totally. But the other side is, oh, and we're on a bus. Jesus Christ. What if somebody rode this bus before and left something? No, 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 no. Produce a warrant. Oh, we are not consenting to any search of our property, person, or this coach. That's the way again. I have done this repeatedly in my life with white armed enforcement officers. It has worked perfectly every time. I've talked about it over the years. Every time that it's happened and I've employed this every time. Oh, okay. Nigger is a little bit informed. All right. And they go along and blah, blah, blah. Boring encounter. You get to live, see another day to hopefully produce justice. But that's one I'm a huge advocate of. That situation could have been just in way worse. No searches. Warrant, no searches. I do not consent without a warrant. That said, um, oh my goodness. We went, I already had generally try to have the audio done sometime, you know, Saturday earlier, the better. I try not to wait until the last minute, you know, before we are live to get the audio done. But 
if I had procrastinated just a little, and I mean, hey, this was a week where I could have procrastinated because my computer broke. Thank goodness people invested and said, hey, the cows, that coon is all right enough to have two computers because if I didn't have a second computer, we would not be on the air today. Uh, but backup computer had to kind of get things rolling and uh, everything because I had all my audio on the other computer and then that failed. So I had to get everything back together here from memory. I think for the most part, I did about 90, 95 percent of everything that I had in mind to play. Uh, I was able to nab again and uh, proceed. But on a week where there could have been procrastinating, it would have served me to be a little late because there was a shooting in Buffalo, New York today at a supermarket where, and I mean anything, anything I always hate or I'm very cautious in this one I really would prefer to not hear from listeners and this is because we've done this before and people called in with incorrect information and it's not anything personal, it's just when things like this happen like minutes beforehand Frequently, the information is wrong. Now, sometimes you will get slips, things that happen like with 9-11, where they're talking about the building has collapsed and it's still there, that sort of thing that's important. Other times you get lots of errors in that first five, 10 minutes, first few hours, even first day, first 24 hours. Sometimes there'll be a lot of errors. And so, yeah, things that'll get reported if people get excited about it, and then it turns out that that's not even accurate. So... There was a shooting that was reported, allegedly 10 fatalities. They haven't released the names. They haven't released the name of the person in custody. I have seen, I can at least say that I can triangulate that. I have seen at least three to four different reports. And I've shared numerous from a number of different news sites, CNN and local New York affiliates, where they've said the suspect in this case has not been identified by name. However, it appeared to be a white man. And I've even seen reports that have given his age as 18 years old. Just before we went live, uh, I saw a report that this 18 year old white man was influenced by Dylan storm roof. We just, or I just mentioned his name repeatedly. That's so crazy. That is so crazy. I was at the beach and, uh, I don't know. She looks like, I should ask how old she is. She's about three. She came to say hi and, uh, Yes, she wanted to participate right on. Talk to your children about racism. Uh, So anyway, uh, no consenting to searches uh, when you are stopped by enforcement officers. Uh, The shooting that happened, it was live. I had audio that I could have played, but I mean, wow, Uh, it just happened. Anyway, they said he was influenced by Dylan Storm Roof. Just mentioned him, all that talking about South Carolina and everything. In fact, they said he wrote a manifesto. Allegedly, he was live streaming this event, uh, apparently, and classified. They said that they were calling him a white supremacist. I think they said the governor of New York, white woman, called, said that he identified as a white supremacist. 
I don't know, you know, the victims, their racial classification, anything like that. But man, that I had that report in there about CDC and gun violence and everything that literally just happened hours ago. That's the only reason that we didn't have the audio in because man, but 10 fatalities. That's what they said. Buffalo, uh, Buffalo, New York. Wow. Uh, So we'll, we shall see. And that might have pretty much confirmed the book that we're going to read. If that is accurate, that he had some sort of influence from Dylan storm roof book club, all God's children. Everything goes back to South Carolina. And that is the book, all God's children, that all of this South Carolina, white supremacy, white terrorism and its roots to New York and continued violence generational oh my god well there you go that was confirmation that was the book I had already said we're going to read it and I was kind of on the fence because like "Mm, I don't know but I mean wow if this is accurate influence of Dylan Storm Roof oh yeah it's nothing even if I was thinking briefly we maybe should read Dylan Storm Roof's uh, manifesto but we did talk about that. We talked about it with Dr. Welsing and all that. But that is one I'll have to process. Maybe we can include that as we're going through uh, All God's Children. But wow, that is uh, All God's Children, Fox Butterfield, Thursday, Cow's Book Club. Reading is more important than watching television. That is the natural sequel to what we just finished as well. Wow. All righty. Uh, Things to share. One, invest if you think the program is constructive, listener supported, counter racist radio. Hit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Uh, you'll see the PayPal button in the top right corner. Much obliged to all the folks who have invested for over a decade. Hopefully we have been worthy of your time and energy serious about replacing white supremacy with justice and offering suggestion, logical suggestions such as uh, without a warrant. I do not consent to searches. If you don't feel safe employing that strategy, don't use it. Uh, if you visit the blog, PayPal button is in the top right. Directly beneath that, you'll see the links for PayPal, Cash App, and Venmo. The Cash App address, cash.app forward slash dollar sign, the cows. Uh, huge thanks to all the folks who have invested. Uh, hopefully, again, worthy of your time and energy. You can also hit us uh, at our wish list at Amazon.com under Gus. T renegade huge thanks to all the folks who have nabbed items uh, again uh, hopefully you have gotten some worthy information from your listening Ho- I'm at Richmond Beach that's why I said the little non-white female gorgeous little I guess three no older than three I suspect uh, but she came and she spoke she was so happy to be out here uh, at the beach park which I would be too who doesn't love being at the beach um, but I do have a hammock on my wish list for a reason. That is not the most important thing. Like just saying like that is one thing I was so envious all last summer going to Richmond beach and 
Golden Gardens, Discovery Park. Some of our listeners now know the joy of Golden Gardens, one of my favorite beaches right up there with Richmond Beach, where I am now. And not as much Alcott Beach, but many, many beaches, Green Lake and so many of the glorious spots throughout Seattle where whites, they had their uh, stand up paddle boats and all the rest of it. I, I took pictures of the pink flamingo last summer. I posted it on Facebook, man. Hammock. I'm a worthless Negro from Virginia, but man, I would be so much happier, more patient, hopefully more productive with a hammock. They have the little area where I was at today. I could have been in my hammock at the beach prepping for the program. Hammock. You should get one too. In fact, like, man, talk about stress relief. You can find, you know, a lovely outdoor spot, like lots of places it's warming up, sunshine. You could go out. If you have a pal, buddy or what have you, if you're married, care mate, all that good stuff, get two. They're not even, you know, break the bank expensive. Go out. Y'all can meditate. You can read. Y'all can, you know, get your hammock together. We'll read for 30 minutes and then we'll discuss. And then we'll read. 30 more minutes and discuss. We could take food, snacks and everything. Look at the water. I mean, get a, I was so, I would see white people get their hammocks and post up at like green Lake and uh, oh, golden gardens. Oh, that is because that is such a beautiful location. The sea lions hop out of the water and do a little dance for you and everything. Like it is glorious out there, uh, but they would have their hammocks. Anyway, fun times in Seattle for the summer. Uh, Back to counter-racism. Uh, we should be here on Tuesday. White guests on- White guests only. White guests only. Gerald Van Dusen, white man, suspected racist. Uh, he wrote a book about Detroit, uh, The Bird Wall in Detroit. That was the book that I wanted to talk about. I got confused. I got the wrong book. He wrote a book about the race riot in 1942 in Detroit. Which is, you know, hey, same thing. Right? Uh, but I mean, it's just the point of it. I want to talk about the other one. So I'm a little bit upset. I would have rather had that book uh, to talk about. But Gerald Van Dusen be here Tuesday talking about racism, uh, specifically with regards to housing in Detroit, Michigan. And I told him repeatedly, I want to make sure that we include black residents being overtaxed in the Detroit area. And then they had their houses foreclosed on. And then they didn't find out until it was way too. They've been, you know, given the boot and all their properties out in the street and all that. And then years later, whoa, we charged you about 500 percent too much on property taxes. My goodness. In fact, we might have owed you some money. Maybe we shouldn't have took your property at all. But too much. Can't cry for spilt milk now. Metaphor. Make sure we include that. But that should be Tuesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. White guests only no exceptions Orenthal James Anthony Broadwater only maybes uh, and I have to say again Dr. Dennis B. Downey white guests only now he was here on Monday May 9 this past week he lied and I'm just I emphasized that before I'm emphasizing emphasizing it again he lied repeatedly about including armed black resistance in his book. There's none of that in the book. And that's important because he ends his book 
with an aborted 1938 lynching of a black male. That is the way that Essie Mae Washington Williams begins her memoir, except she includes armed black resistance. Her stepfather, John Henry Washington, her namesake, one of the black males who went out to stop this black male from being lynched, falsely accused of having raping tendencies. He didn't include any of that. And I said, that is one of the main reasons why it's white guests only. There are many, but that's one right there. Live demonstration. What's one of the main ways that they practice racism? And with Dr. Downey, it was so important because he didn't just lie. When non-Clemson grad asked his question, hey, when you go talk to white people, you know, do you tell them about taking he was quoting the Doobie Brothers on us, taking it to the streets. Do you talk to white people about doing all that? And he said, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't do any, you know, promoting the violence. There were listeners who said they got confused like, whoa, maybe non-Clemson grad was on here talking about some violence and being rowdy. Maybe I didn't, I didn't really understand the question. Maybe he got confused or something. And, practicing racism that is a staple they will do all types of word manipulation to avoid answering your question they'll suggest that you brought up something that you didn't even include like he did it repeatedly with me he kept talking about critical race theory we're talking about the 1938 lynching of Zachariah Walker not critical race theory that term is nowhere in your book I didn't say anything about that when I emailed to invite you to come on this program why are you bringing that up in addition to quoting all of these black men that must be one too for white people to show all of their expertise and all of the Negroes that they've read so that they can quote them I've talked about that pattern for years because he quoted a lot of dead black males even some live ones too Dr. Nell Irvin Painter Cowbell but anywho, so much to say about Dr. Downey, but just he lied. And even the way that they can cause confusion, he did a lot of it with were even suggesting, you know, you didn't even ask. He was talking to me. You didn't even ask about the NAACP investigation. I mean, and that to suggest, hey, you're not even talking about the text now, at that point. We had talked in detail about the book for more than an hour. I read many passages suggest you're just you missed the main points. Do you know why Gus didn't bring up the NAACP investigation? This is not rocket science. Who has the power? So what was the result of the NAACP investigation? That's why I didn't bring up the NAACP investigation. Talking about Negras, come on. Anywho, um, with the specific audio clips for today, wow, I will not touch on everything. I'll, I'll reserve my comments at least right now for one, two, Three. I'll pick three things and then we'll get to the folks who dialed in uh, for number one. They talked about abortion in Mississippi or reproductive rights in Mississippi. 
uh, and they talked about the unemployment rates for black females. Number one, I am looking at the statistics. Uh, This is from the Mississippi Department of Employment Security. Do you know who has the highest rate of unemployment in the state of Mississippi, according to the 2017 report annual averages? Again, not rocket science. (laughs) I'm all for black females getting help. I have a black mother, black grandmother, black great grandmother, pairs of them like whoopee, but total omission of black males who have a higher unemployment rate and a lower life expectancy in the state of Mississippi and beyond like, dang, why couldn't it just be every? No. And the consistency of that pattern where the focus is exclusively black females, even if we want to talk about reproductive rights, if it encompasses so many more areas of health, certainly, and even reproductive health, that's not exclusively going to be a conversation with a female. Certainly when we start talking about responsibility and deadbeat dads, they certainly get included then. So why would they be excluded now? Black male privilege, I guess. That was one. And that reminded me so much all of this because they're out protesting here. Gangs of white women out. They were protesting here in Seattle. I saw them this morning. I avoided all of that. Thank goodness. I was away from downtown and Capitol Hill and all of that. Uh, Maafa 21, Mark Crutcher. I uploaded that program uh, this week. He was on our uh, platform way back in December of 2009. And we talked about his documentary film and they have all this accurate information about eugenics and white supremacy, racism and sterilizing black females and black males in this part of the world and how Nazi Germany modeled some of their programs on the racism that was happening here and how sterilizing black males and females became the increasing target of these eugenic programs in the U.S., particularly after like the 1930s and 40s feeble-minded as they say we've talked about all this before in the archives uh but we in that program yes racist they white people they can present accurate information but what is your agenda is it just to get black people to say oh you we are not racist we want you black people to come and be so-called pro-rights to help us you know change these laws or whatever our agenda is uh while we still practice racism i think the metaphor mr fuller used was control of the negro football to get things done That was what we talked about then. And some of that could be happening right now. Something to be mindful about for sure. But I do not trust that any white people care about the reproductive rights and capacities of black people. Uh, Let's see. Second thing. Uh, I was in. Oh, genetics. Well, I'll comment more later, but I was in Oakland. Uh, I said, I've lived in California. I've been in Oakland after all of that came out. And I remember talking to a white woman uh, and this was not a toothless uh, down and out living out of a grocery can white woman. This was a white woman who taught at the University of California, Berkeley. Ph.D. Go Bears. She said, oh, because I had just moved to California this time. She says, oh, did you uh, hear about the. Uh, Oakland Riders case and at this time I didn't know anything about or I did know Neely Fuller but I hadn't talked to him hadn't read his book uh, was not the cows didn't exist you know yeah, that was some time to come 
Uh, and so I said, no, I don't know. Cause, and I wasn't checking the news. So no, I didn't know anything about Oakland Riders. What, what, what is all that? He said, oh, that's these, you know, these officers, they were going out and pretending to be officers and pulling over black people and non-white people and beating them up and all this other stuff. Exactly. You know what you heard the report. They were doing all this stuff that's going on for years and all that. And she said, not our finest moment. Now, I took that hour to me, white people, that she didn't say white people. She could have meant Californians, maybe, or, you know, Oaklanders. I'm not sure, but I strongly suspect that she meant white people. Incidentally, the same white woman later uh, wanted to talk about the book. Uh, why are all the black kids sitting together? I've said for years, that she, why are all the white people living together and keeping the Negroes out and everything else together? That should be the focus. Anywho. Um, but I like, wow, really? I never heard of this. That is crazy. And then I went and looked like, oh my God, like what in the world? Oakland Riders, did you know about this? What? And then they said, Officer Vasquez wanted fugitive to this day. It's been decades. We don't know where he is. Somewhere in the oblivion. Wow. (laughs) We're serious about, you know, making progress in Oakland with our policing. Incidentally, that's the same uh, enforcement, uh, the same group of enforcement officers who were accused of trying to kill Tupac Shakur. I think uh, John Patash in his book points that out when Tupac, when he first starts in his career, early 90s, digital underground and all that East Bay. Uh, he is almost choked to death. I believe that's Oakland police. Uh, they end up having some sort of settlement. I think he gets a little, you know, a few thousand dollars or what have you. But Oakland police, I believe it was that almost killed Tupac Shakur. And that would have been, uh, if it's been 20 years of uh, federal oversight, that would have probably been about a decade or so before their oversight. That the near murder of Tupac Shakur should have been one of the cases that they included as to why Federal oversight is warranted. They have that here in Seattle, too. And they behave the same way long time because it's been here for over a decade now and bad morale. And we don't want to do this and new use of force policy. And we talked about all that with Norm Stamper as well. White man, former uh, chief of police. Uh, Last thing, the segment. Not most important, but well, I don't know. Reading is more important than watching television, reading and writing. That said, uh, the last segment, Charles Barkley, victim of white supremacy and Cal Bell produced offspring with a white woman and his offspring also married and produced children with a individual classified as white, which happens very common, have to see what his grandchild looks like. His grandchild might be able to be accepted as white. We don't know. Anywho, um, Mr. Barkley, victim of racism. In fact, I have to pause for a second. I can say I took a college history class and not an introductory class. You know, where you got freshmen who've been doing beer pong, you know, <laughs> they don't, they don't even know what's going on. I took a history class that was right at the threshold of where it would be history majors only in this class, mostly white people. And this was a antebellum U S history class. So civil war and before 
somehow I don't even know how this uh, came up somehow it comes up so who are black leaders Charles Barkley is the name that gets said now I'm doing my Dr. Welsing I'm sitting in the front so I don't see exactly who said this but it was as I said a mostly white class and it wasn't like Charles Barkley what who said that you gotta be it wasn't like oh, that's you know the goofiest thing all right let's be serious let's be serious who, who are the leaders like al sharpton like at least you know jesse jackson like okay obama okay okay charles barkley <sighs> anywho uh you <laughs> know so charles barkley He's in the segment where they say, hey, we're going, we're going to have this golf tournament. Incidentally, a golf tournament that featured Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, Josh Allen, all three classified as white men and Patrick Mahomes, who has one white parent, one non-white parent. Look out for the echo and now has produced offspring with a person classified as white. Those are the people that Charles Barkley is so excited about going to watch play golf with Ernie Johnson, who is a white man. He's like, can't wait. It's going to be so great. It's going to be awesome. Love it. Love it. Woo, woo, woo. And so his Kenny Smith, black male, he says, Oh, I'm going to come too. Oh, you're black. A. Eh? Oh, you're not coming. And they'll what? Whoa. Whoa. Like you can't, Say that behind the set. Even Ernie Johnson, the white man, said, "Whoa, I was stunned." What, what, what? And they, you know, try to get it back together and be professional. And this happened on so-called Mother's Day. Kenny Smith, he has children, parents, family. They might want to turn in. You know, let's see Kenny's on TV for Mother's Day. Might give us a shout out. Let's watch Kenny and have. Charles Barley, oh, you're not blinging, you're a black A. They got a long history of telling black people exactly, you are not bringing your black A to the golf course, even Tiger Woods. Cowbell again. Anywho, actually, I can even pause, give you one more. Charles Barkley, he did an interview, this is some years ago, he did an interview talking about the first time that he met Michael Jordan. And so this is like when they were in high school or college and they were really were at one time, really good friends, not anymore, but either way, uh, he says that he, their plan, he says, met this guy, Mike Jordan before, you know, all the fame and everything. He's, he's black, really black. <laughs> this is not like, and Charles Barkley is from Leeds, Alabama. This is the land of the Scottsboro boys. And, the Montgomery bus boycott landed the racism white supremacy was so bad Rosa Parks had to flee to Detroit Michigan to live out her days that's where Charles Barkley grew up he said yeah Michael he was black really black it wasn't that wow he was crystal black and wow he had all that melon his black A yikes get away from around him but I, I was so just for that to be on national television on Mother's Day. Not that I haven't heard that before. What made it even more painful was how many times I've heard that. That's Sanford and Son right there. Isn't it? Big dummy. 
heathen, yo, black. That's Sanford and Son. That's black culture, right? That's what we brag about. I've heard that so many times. I played Professor Griff the second time that he was a guest on the cows uh, back in 2010. We were talking about Tim Wise and even to put that in full context where it was uh, white people. They're not going to listen to. We're not talking about your black behind and then saying that, hey, uh, you know, I know you're not a fan of Tim Wise, but maybe you don't understand. Maybe the work that he's doing is a little bit more divine. He even called attention to the fact that he used the word divine to describe Timothy. Don't drink the Kool-Aid wise. This was before I told him, oh, yeah, he said that Dr. Welsing's work is pseudoscientific bullshit. Divinity. But I said, man, I can think of many, many times where people have talked to me. That's another reason right there (laughs) why it's white guests only. I would much rather have all the discourtesy and anti-blackness coming from a suspected race soldier as opposed to an invited victim of white supremacy had my fill of that thank you kindly but I can think of tons of examples of that can anybody think of an example of somebody saying hey your white ass excuse the profanity but I mean hey that's the way it went on national TV so hey your white ass is or even I take your white behind your cracker hind parts Your white posterior. Has anyone ever like, I mean, any way, can you think of a Chappelle show skit, uh, a, a buried uh, Richard Pryor archive, uh, Chris Rock said something, uh, Red Fox, anything. If you can think of saying it from your personal life, if somebody says this, Get your white behind out of here. If you've heard, if you say this, you've said this once in your life, let us know. I have never, ever heard a non-white person talk about any white person like that. I hear black, all kinds of black people get talked about like that, including Gus T all the time. And there is a reason I have anti-blackness up every compensatory call in. It is in the description. There is a reason Dr. Francis Cress Welsing talked about black self-respect all the time anybody saying that hey Dr. Welsing her legacy meant something to me and the work that she did and the ISIS papers and her lectures and I was able to go to the Welsing Institute or whatever black self-respect it should be reflected in how I talk to treat other individuals who are assigned to the black category that was from Asada Shakur's Uh, autobiography the portion where she talked about any insult being magnified put that black on it not just a bastard but a black bastard he could have just said oh you're not coming you're not coming it's not for you get out of here you're not coming no 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 
your black ass isn't coming. Even if we had not been on television, if it had just been us, we were, we could be real talk in an alley behind the studio. It's no cameras. It's just the three of us. <laughs> what have you talking in? Oh, your black ass isn't coming. Plus, a white person is present. Like, man, I would have to say something about that. Like, that is so black self-respect annihilated. Again, if anybody can think, if you say that, you're a cracker behind. Get your white behind out of here. Your cracker posterior. Posterior, get out of here. Your white hind parts, get on out of here. I cannot think of one time ever in my life where I've heard someone talk about a white person like that. That's Ruth. That's every that's every episode of Sanford and Son. Black culture. That's that right there. That's black culture. On Mother's Day, no less. That's what somebody's black mother can tune in and see. See my baby. Oh, he just did. He just tell my baby to his black ass is not welcome at the. That's what I get for for Mother's Day. Or his mother to tune in. My baby just told somebody's child that his black ass is not welcome at the golf course. Black self-respect, man. Black self-respect. The number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61. If you would like to participate. Uh, yeah, the Buffalo situation, like I said, I'm real resonant. I'd prefer almost to not hear about that because the disinformation and inaccuracies of the first few minutes are rife. Uh, and I'd prefer not to contribute to inaccuracies. So, uh, folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, a line should be open. Proceed. Uh, yeah, can I be heard? Greetings, yes, sir. Oh, yeah, this is Nick over the road. Um, I, I couldn't remember which state it was in, and I couldn't find the article. But there was a non-white, well, a white female who had planned to shoot up a church. And what happened, the church just happened to cancel, I guess, their, their Bible study that day. And she got, you know, I mean, she got so upset that she told one of her friends, and the friend called the police. And and the police went and arrested her, and I and they even took credit for, for like stopping her from shooting the church. Um, when I and when I get a chance, I'm gonna see if I can find the article, and that, that's all I wanted to say for now. I, I'll mute myself. Much obliged. One more thing. She said she was this. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, she said she was inspired by Dylan Roof. Everyone is inspired by Dylan Storm Roof. My goodness. That's how we got started. I won't say started, but that was a huge influence 
Uh, maybe he inspired us too in terms of uh, Pitchfork Ben Tillman. That's why we read his biography uh, to begin with. And, you know, the threat of Negro domination hangs up. All of that is uh, Dylan Stormroof, right? We uh, read all that. Incidentally, if I can re- bring up one thing before we get to our other callers, last week I said cased and cased by Isabel Wilkerson and uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me. I said both of those books are trash. Now, Case, stand on that all day, every day, wrote a review, it's in the archives, like, whatever. It's worse than that, but we'll take trash for the moment. With Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me, like, that's tough to call a book written by a victim of racism trash. Like, it would have to be substantial. <laughs> like, just beyond you don't agree, or blah, blah, blah. Like, I said, oh, Dylan Storm Roof and I thought this before we even had the conversation today I thought about that and that's trash appropriate and I said oh between the world and me we were told they advanced the publication meaning it was released sooner than they originally anticipated also in response to Dylan Storm Roof and that was the way that that book was talked about and promoted in 2015 so if this is supposed to help me understand why that event took place in Charleston South Carolina absolutely bold face print underline and that is also in the archives you can get more detail as to why would Gusty say that that book is also trash yes Dylan Storm Roof the connections abound all God's children book club other folks that we've not heard from Hello. Our caller in Georgia. Folks in Delaware State had tough problems in your state. In the state that I live in, I don't own don't own any state. Uh, um, thank you so much for taking my call. Hope everyone's having the best evening they can have. Um, yeah, that was. I agree with you on the procedure about the warrant, but I know sometimes. People are nervous, and um, I know they talk about the talk that people have with their black children about the police, and I know they talk about the talk with um, black young men, well, not young men, black boys. I believe they had the talk of girls, but I know I didn't have a talk. My father told me an episode where something happened, but I was like 30-something years old. I'm like, I'm late now, and I already had an episode of my own. So... <laughs> Well, not a searching episode, but an episode with the police on my on my own at that time. I already had one. Um, the genetics, that's, wow. Um, yeah, you have to be careful what you find. Um, find the right people to do, but I don't know if I would do something like that. Um, fortunately, I know who my parents are and three-fourths of my grandparents were um, great-grandmother, great-grandfather. Um, I, that's enough medical history for me. Um, they're around me. I'll just go with I'm good with that and aunts and uncles and stuff. So I'm good with the medical history around me without having to search. But again, that comes to when you talk about I'm playing with sex and jokes on the offspring. People don't know 
cool if they adopted them or who their biological family were because you had to, you know, you had to make that tough decision to not raise a child or single mother or single father. You don't know which one is which. Not having the other side of that family, not knowing that history. Some people might search that out. So, um, again, mainly for medical reasons, I don't, I know that um, me, 23, and all that stuff is popular, but for medical reasons, you know, you may want to know some things and why things are happening and what's going to happen um, if you have the resources to do so. We say that like a lot of black people are just going out getting genetic testing. Maybe they are. <laughs> I don't know. Of course, enough black people. Um, about the shooting today, I saw, um, I'm not going to comment. I just want to say I saw the press conference. I think it's important to watch the press conferences per se, because a lot of times those are the people at those press conferences who are going to make decisions on how what they call justice or how this issue will be, as you say, resolved. I don't I mean people are dead. I don't know how you, I mean, they're not the funeral home, but how <laughs> that type of um, issue will be resolved or what they call justice will be um administered so on. So I think it's you know, if you're gonna listen to something, just maybe try to listen to that. I don't know about all the news stories around it. Um, not to say those are good or bad, but, you know, try to do that and that again shows the importance of black journalism because there's no quote unquote trusted black journalist, you know. I don't know if there's any trusted journalists in general. But I don't know if there's any trusted black ones. I know there are people out like you who, you know, provide clips and everything. We're very appreciative of that. But, you know, a lot of it sometimes is after the fact. So it's kind of, you know, hard. Or they're not immediately on the scene when something happens. So it's kind of hard. Um, so we have to, that's something we probably all have to work on if we want to. You know, one of the areas we definitely have to work on if we want to help solve the problem. Um, and at our, the church that I go to, there's a white family. And my mother, she thinks I'm playing. I'm like, look, I'll be checking them out. Them on Storm Roof, never forget. You know, the Holocaust, never forget. This Charleston, never forget. Anytime you see them coming, they could be, you know, not trying to do that. But you don't know. And I was like, oh, hey, mm-mm, you know, mm, you know, like looking around, mm, and I just, and I know you're not supposed to do that in what's called the house of worship, but um, on roof, never forget. Um, and I was at a mu- the museum, local museum here the other day, and there was a tour being given to school children from Atlanta. They were on high school, and on the positive side, the young ladies also saw braids or natural hair. I was just thinking when I was in high school, I remember I had a perm. Would have seen a lot of perms and relaxers. So I was glad about that. Um, but there were only two young men in this group, about maybe 12, 14 students. And they didn't really, I don't know, it felt like they were forced to go. They really didn't understand not to say they're going to fully understand the grasp of everything they're seeing at a museum, so to speak. But um, I don't know. I was very not excited about what's going on in the school system 
in this area, and I was told that they went to private school. So I'm like, okay, someone's paying a lot of money for, you know, sweet children, very sweet children, nice sweet children. But the things that just did not seem to connect, and I don't know because they're in school here. Like, I went to college in the South, but I went to um, elementary, junior school, high school in New York City. And not that, you know, New York City is a better place and you don't necessarily learn everything there, but I don't know, we just seen, I don't know, maybe it was me or I don't know, we just seen like we would be a little more interested in certain things, you know, surrounding black people and black culture. And maybe because the high school I went to, we were not a lot of black people. So, you know, there was a quote unquote black club and I went to that and you know, work together. And I guess one more thing, the abortions. I don't think anybody in their right mind for abortions. That's like a last resort. I thought, you know, I would think. But I remember being in high school. I'm trying to hurt in five minutes. Um, I was one year I went to what's called the Women's Club. And the only reason I went, because they said, oh, no, black people went. So I went for a whole year. And we were teenagers. So I was like 15. So we were teenagers. In this, in my school, that school went from seventh to twelfth grade, so like maybe twelve to seventeen, eighteen. Almost every week, these white girls were talking about abortions. I was like, "What kind of hoes are these?" That's I'm sorry, I know that's not the word to use, but that's that's what I was thinking for myself because I'm like, I'm not doing anything where I'm not saying I'm perfect, but definitely at that time, I wasn't doing anything that would warrant the need for an abortion. So they are really. I don't know, drilled into them when they are young or whatever. But, you know, New York City is, quote, unquote, a liberal place. They were really into it. And I stuck through the whole year because that's what I committed to. But I was like, ooh, every week. Not not equal pay, nothing like that. Almost every week. And, you know, the student clubs have an advisor, so she's going along with this. Um. And that's all I have to say at this point. Thank you. <laughs> she said, I just live here. Hey, 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 back all that up. I, I, I just reside here. I do not own the state of Georgia. Not in charge of any of the politics down here. Good old GA. Indeed. Indeed. Context of white supremacy that is amazing like no other issues nothing else is important just abortion really <laughs> y'all don't nothing really? <laughs> like, <either. laughs> I, that's all i remember from a school year so september to june abortion 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 one girl she was she was a christian girl i remember she's about marriage and stuff they almost they shot her down like what's wrong with you blah 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 and, and she was in fact we were in the same grade i don't think she came back she went to one meeting and she was like, but I tried, I was like, oh, it was, it was rough. But I took it for this, I took an L for the team. Like, mm, <laughs> Y'all look good. We just stay away from this. Mm, mm, mm. I don't know what to say. Like, uh, that does not sound like respectability politics, but you know, hey, what? What do I know? They say I hate black females, so you know I probably just need better, uh, better education. Like, wow, uh, 
they were, like I said, those type, they were out in full force. They had signs, flags, paraphernalia, like they were up early. They were ready to roll with the protests and all that. Like, have at it, sisters. Uh, Speaking of sisters, uh, Nick over the road. Now, he mentioned the white female who's going to do the same thing. And we talked about this. This is just 2019. I think part of the reason that he and I had memory trouble is because this was a white child who did this. So they didn't name her unless you're thinking of a totally different case. But uh, the Washington Post, they write white teen girl detailed plan for racist attack on black churchgoers in notebook. Police say, I remember this police and uh oh, Northern Georgia said, and that's right next to South Carolina, said that they arrested a white teenager who was plotting to kill parishioners at a mostly black church, thwarting an alleged racist attack that highlighted a growing threat of hate fuel. They don't say white supremacists fueled violence against houses of worship. The 16 year old white girl was charged with attempt to commit murder after students at her high school told administrators she had a notebook filled with detailed plans to kill members of the Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Gainesville, Georgia. Indeed, that's in the archives. I'm very certain because I remember uh, this case again. Any of the folks who say not to check the news, I do not agree. Uh, Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, proceed. Greetings, everyone. Retired firefighter in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, I uh, was kind of expecting that uh, uh, you would uh, include uh, something about the uh, the incident in Buffalo. Uh, if you had the time to and, and what you were prefaced with is your uh, uh, your tape on uh, former president, victim of racist white supremacy, Barack Obama, bragging about his two daughters and uh, young people in and around their ages and how they uh, have, quote unquote, progressed on racism, uh, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, mind you, this uh, terrorist killer is at least about four or five years younger than his two daughters. And, uh, and another thing, uh, you know, VGQ to uh, Mr. Obama, uh, he's a victim of racist white supremacy. I would wonder on how he would scientifically measure the differences between uh, times before and what quote unquote young people are doing when it comes to racism, white supremacy today, uh, to get that opinion. Uh, but anyway, uh, I did hear about it. I also heard, uh, some other, uh, details about it that is not confirmed. Uh, one has it said that, uh, the firearm that he used, uh, was nicknamed nigger. Uh, I would really prefer not to hear all that because yeah, like 
I've seen too many times where the things that come out that first day are not accurate. So if that is true, I'd rather. Yeah, that's why, that's why I prefaced it. I prefaced it with uh, uh, that 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 is not a solid uh, information. Right. That's, that's why that's I said I prefer not to hear all of that to then have to come back and find out that that is true or is not true. Let's wait until we get more. We don't even have a name yet. That's why I said I prefer not to hear because things just haven't been substantiated yet. Yeah, well, it, 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 I even heard I even heard a name. I won't mention what the name is. I don't remember, but I did hear a name. Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, DCF program. We can report on that. <laughs> uh, today's uh, talk was about inflation. Uh, we talked to the young fellows about inflation. Uh, the rising in price of goods and services. Uh, how does that how does that affect uh, your care group? And what can you do within your care group on uh, spreading relief for your attempted parents or parent? Uh, to make things better. Uh, got a lot of good answers. Uh, got a lot of good answers uh, to that uh, question. Uh, some talked about, you know, raising money, but we're talking about when you're seven years old, that that, that becomes kind of challenging for a seven-year-old to raise money. Uh, but I've mentioned uh, that, uh, well, you can uh, just make sure you do the best that you can in your workplace, which is school, uh, and also at your workplace at home as far as uh, making things easier for that person or persons who have to go outside of the uh, the uh, living uh, uh, place and work and work hard for, in a lot of cases, not an adequate amount of compensation for it. You can have things a little bit more easier for the person when they come home, whether that's a tempted mother or father or both. Uh, the film today was, was uh, eyes on a prize clip on uh, the Miami uh, rebellion that took place in May, I, I was thinking about something happened in May in history that I that I know about, and it came to my mind. It was actually the uh, quote unquote McDuffie riots in in 1980. It was uh, it took place in May of May 17th, 18th, the weekend uh, of in 1980. So I decided to show that clip, something like a 30 minute clip, uh, to them. Uh, and have a discussion afterwards uh, about uh, it first started with uh, the history, some brief history on the city of Miami uh, and uh, also the history about uh, uh, black people getting moved out of a section of Miami due to the building of I-95 right through the neighborhood, a famous area, is called Overtown, uh, and in turn, 
from that point on, uh, there always was conflict directly with law enforcement and black people, not just in Miami, but all over the world, actually. And But in this particular case, uh, it rose to a point in time to whereas uh, this black male, Arthur McDuffie, uh, was being chased by the police uh, for a traffic violation. They caught up to him and beat him to death. Uh, the point of anger from the black community, what aided that anger was there was reports on the trial almost every day. It was kind of like similar to the OJ Simpson trial, except for it was in, it was segments, not the whole trial. Uh, but it kept, it kept people paying attention to it and all four, I think it was four or five white law enforcement officers that, uh, were on trial for his murder. Uh, they were all cleared of every offense that they were indicted for, uh, by an all white jury. Uh, the trial was moved to Tampa, Florida instead of Miami Dade County. And uh, the uh, rebellion started within a few minutes after that that uh, that uh, decision in Tampa. Uh, and uh, so that's basically what we did today. Uh, had a brief discussion afterwards. Uh, I mentioned I, I I put it in a term of a question to them about well what is the what is the 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 most useful weapon that you have on you. And one child mentioned a gun. Uh, another one mentioned a fist. I said, come on, really think about what you, what, 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 what the, the question that I asked. And then finally one of them said, my brain. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so, you know, I, I, you know, was I was able to get them to think about things, and uh, it worked out pretty well as far as that concerned. Uh, they uh, basically got a lot out of the uh, the clip that I showed them today, and uh, that's all I say. Thank you for listening. That's it. Woof. Much obliged. Retired firefighter, thank you for your patience. That is, uh, mm, mm, mm. they were honest. They were honest. Hey, 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 hey. I am never upset. They were honest about an That's honest one thing answer. about a child as opposed to an adult, you know, uh, or a person, the younger person is, the more honest they're going to be. <laughs> they may be wrong, but they're honest. And I can appreciate that you can you can it there you can you can have a good you can get traction from that from that honesty and to be able to teach as a as opposed to someone who's being uh persuasive and tricky it's harder to uh be able to connect with that person as opposed to somebody being honest. Thank 
context of white supremacy. The number is 720-716-7300. The code 564943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to. Now, we still, I have not heard anyone. Do you say, you better get your cracker hind parts out of here? Or have you heard, we haven't heard anyone say, oh man, Gus, what? You need to get out of Seattle because we say that all the time around here. Like nobody says, get your black behind out of it. Get your white butt out of here. Get your white hind parts out of here. You better get your cracker derriere out of here. That's every day, all day. I say that about 15 times today myself. Like, whew, let me know. But I don't think I've ever heard that in my life. Anywho, uh, other folks that we missed totally? Rob, you are. Uh, Rob in Southern California. Yes, sir. Uh, greetings uh, to Gus and fathers listening. Uh, just very quickly, uh, you know, I'm in San Diego from Milwaukee and uh, just wanted to highlight that there was a uh, shooting outside the Pfizer Forum uh, the other night. Uh, Pfizer Forum is the arena where the Bucks play professional basketball. Uh, there were 21 people injured in three separate shootings. Um, thankfully no one was fatally injured, uh, but really what I wanted to highlight is I read the article, um, on the shooting and it said that as a result of the shooting that they were going to cancel, uh, the outside watch party, which was due to, uh, generate a crowd of around 10,000 people. Uh, that has been canceled and a curfew uh, has been enforced for uh, people the age uh, 20 and under. Uh, I'm guessing that would be black males. And they said that it was only for the downtown area. Now, um, being from Milwaukee, uh, downtown Milwaukee is a very small area. And it extends very quickly into the area where people uh, classified as black live. And then I would suspect that that uh, curfew is something that's going to be imposed throughout the city. And uh, that's all I wanted to share for now. Thank you. Wow. Much obliged, uh, Rob, our Wisconsin transplant. Um, hmm. We did have that report on the CDC to just how much gun violence reports can you have? Uh, probably another shooting since we went live. Uh, they have, this is at Marca.com, M-A-R-C-A, shooting after Buck Celtics game leaves 20 injured near Pfizer Forum in Milwaukee. Like, are you, a wave of violence occurred Friday night in Milwaukee, including a pair of shootings a few blocks from the Pfizer Forum, the arena where the Boston Celtics and Milwaukee Bucks played game six of their NBA playoff series, leaving a total of 20 people injured by gunfire. Shooting after Bucks Celtics, uh, shortly after the NBA game ended, uh, the first shooting that occurred around 9-12 left three injured, two men ages 26 and 29, and a 16-year-old girl, Milwaukee Police Captain Warren Allen told CNN. 
Jeez. 17 wounded in second shooting. Although all the wounded ranging from age 15 to 47 are expected to survive. In addition, 10 people were arrested and nine firearms were recovered in connection with the shootings near downtown Milwaukee. Wow. I think for many reasons, I would still probably be avoiding large crowds to some degree, but that's just me. Other folks who dialed in, if you have commentary to share, proceed. I could, can I share something else quickly? Let's hear it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, so <clears throat> I encountered a, a situation where basically uh, my uh, iPhone was strong-armed uh, by another black male. Um, guy came around with the story and uh, saying that he had just lost some items and lost his vehicle and uh, things like that. And uh, he wanted to buy my phone. So give him the phone. He gets the phone. Doesn't want to give the phone back. And then uh, basically attempted to fight me (laughs) over my property. Uh, Needless to say, uh, I did decline the... uh, Royale battle in the street, uh, excuse the metaphor. Um, I, you know, I don't have a lot. I don't claim to have a lot of possessions or uh, finances, but an iPhone, uh, I can go get a brand new iPhone right now if I wanted to. Um, so I was really, uh, disturbed, uh, with the situation, uh, just trying to help someone out. And, uh, I just felt like (laughs) completely taken advantage of, um, you know, it did, um, affect, uh, a couple days of my work. Um, and so I just wanted to, uh, just put that out there. We'll just say that I wanted to share that, uh, with the callers and the listeners. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's it. That's all I wanted to share. Thank you. Very sorry to hear that that happened to you, sir. Um, they did say in that report on gun violence that the group most impacted by gun violence, black males. So some sort of dual, as he said, battle royal in the street. Uh, over your property like man and then for race soldiers to ride by and see that and take both of you to jail or you know hey they're smuggling crack or whatever else we could just shoot them both and you know be done with it like man anti I said the anti-blackness anti-blackness major problem just in the way that we've been conditioned to treat think of other black people if that's how I think about black people all the time you're black behind you're black behind well hey 
That's who I go in strong arm rob and all the rest. Uh, other folks dialed in commentary they wanted to get in before we get ready to wrap things up. Miss anybody? Anybody that we hadn't heard from at all? May I be heard? Caller in Florida? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners, and callers. I only just wanted to say just uh, two quick things. The first was on the uh, the segment about the the bus being pulled over, and it was interesting how they included that audio of, I think that was the race soldiers, um, thinking that it was going to be uh, some weed on a bus. Like, hey, it looks like a, it's a bunch of young young women or young girls on the bus. You know, they may have some weed or something on that, you know. And um, it seemed like the... I think that was a victim. He was talking to a black female, say, uh, where did you get this wrapped in plastic? And did your parents tell you this and that? And it just seemed like he was being, uh, he was practicing racism imposing on her and trying to get her to be nervous. But it seemed like she was uh, being calm in her responses. Um, but I agree with that uh, approach about the warrant you know, having a warrant. And another one I wanted to mention was they've been talking about the, uh, the, the formula shortage for the baby formula. And I could tell a white supremacy in that as well, uh, where I guess they were trying to say one child has some kind of a milk allergy. I don't know if anyone has seen it. And there was another one where they just constantly kept showing the, but they was using the, I think they were using the code, the mothers, but they were really talking about white mothers. Um, and they ended the segment saying, hey, you know, we really want to care for children like Charlie. And the, the way that I uh, absorbed that was also white supremacy. Um, and I forgot to also mention about the inflation. They said they were supposed to give a 1000 dollar uh bonus but our area didn't get it so the sheriff's department got it but we all supposed to be for the county or maybe the state of florida but i'm still waiting to hear on that but that's all i have to say thank thank you uh, cheated them out of their bonus that's ron DeSantis, man like he said the sheriffs they got their bonus but the court yeah yeah we get to them later incidentally we did hear caller at the courthouse. They had the segment where they were talking about COVID-19 and the so-called uh, partisan nature of the pandemic. Now that I thought was important. One, he just said that yesterday when he was talking about the fellow on the white husband of one of his coworkers who I guess tested positive four different times uh, for COVID-19. They didn't say anything about Nurse Rivers. In fact, they didn't say anything about racial classification at all. It was just 
blue, red, Republican, Democrat. And all this about misinformation, even right here in my state, Wazoo and all the rest of Wazoo is not, you know, here, but neither here nor there. Now, that's what I've been saying the whole time. Like, I don't want to hear anything about black people and Nurse Rivers. They said black people have taken COVID-19 seriously, mask, all the rest of it, even with reservations. I want to know why you have such a large segment of white people. And you can't even come out and say, wow, we have a lot of individuals classified as white who are not getting the vaccine, not taking this seriously, contracting COVID-19 four different times and not changing their behavior. What's up? Is it Nurse Rivers for them too? That's why I think that so many, they don't even give a mention of race. They can come out and talk about black people all day long and Nurse Rivers and all the niggers won't do right and all this and that and the other and Republicans. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Anything else to make sure? Uh, our la- oh, yeah, oh, we'll be here tomorrow. Global Sunday talk on racism, white supremacy, uh, irregular time, 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, 12 noon Pacific. We should be here. The shooting. We will have to talk about that tomorrow. Now, tomorrow, we'll have some time to see. Now, is the gun called Negra? Let's get some confirmation on some of these things. Do they have this alleged manifesto and all the rest of it? Uh, Incidentally, one other piece I did want to make sure to comment on. They had that segment where they were talking about genetic testing and uh, they had a female staff member who got her stomach removed. You don't need a stomach. Who knew? Because she did her genetic testing risk for stomach cancer. That segment Because they said, hey, we don't have a lot of black people who do this. How are we going to make this equitable access and blah, 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 and all the rest. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We got that. Don't even worry about that. Now, that's one of the ones where I thought of Neely Fuller Jr. Because they had a report. It was the New York Times just within the last 10 days how Ben got his penis. This is talking about over the especially since the pandemic, they've had a, a huge increase. People wanting this surgery and get a you know fake penis and transgender this and all the rest of it huge and they've had a number of reports talking about this but and they had Ben is someone classified as white looks like to me easily you will have individuals classified as white they can go and get their stomach removed and genetic testing and help them pick out what they want for their child and get these traits removed and all that, get a fake penis, get fake breasts and all the rest of it. We can't even get basic care. That's what they were talking about with reproductive rights. Basics. That's what Mr. Fuller said. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't have me involved in anything, gay rights or anything else, transgender, Basics. What do you mean? I need to chop off my penis like, whoa, 
I can't even get a job for like, wait a minute. Like, can we just do the, the basics before we do that? Or what do you mean you need to sew a fake penis on me? So what that it actually works like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's take care of some of the basics first. Then we can get to, and maybe we don't even need, maybe we take care of some of the basics. I don't even need all that. And as he said repeatedly, there's something kind of strange about that. Like you don't come to, hey, we're having a tough time. We got all these black moms who are struggling. He brought up the formula. We've talked about that. We talked about that. I thought of Andrea Freeman, her book skimmed and the whole way that uh, formula was marketed to black females that was 2000, the very beginning of 2020. In fact, I think that was so early in 2020. That was pre-Rona. But we talked about that and how the, exactly what he said. The current image, when you think of breastfeeding, that is white women who are, I mean, please. But that's, oh, yeah. You want to do right by Charlie. Yes. Get that white nipple in that little white mouth. And we're not having any abortion. We're not going to abort you, little Charlie. We got you. Now, these little heifers over here. Now, yeah, these old, you know, welfare queen ghetto mammies. Yeah, you know, they're struggling with that formula and all the rest of it. Yeah, the little ghetto such and such is. Yeah, you're doing the best you can. Yeah, I know. Talked about that with Andrew. Suspected racist white woman Andrea Freeman but her book skipped lots of and even the whole campaign of how that came to be very important but yeah and that would be another thing lots of things to talk about before you produce offspring we're going to breastfeed right how are we going to make sure that happens and blah 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 and all that anywho uh, before we wrap up see this is what i mean about information being so this was reported at npr 21 minutes ago 11:39 eastern time it just went midnight uh eastern time uh so they report officials say a gunman's attack that killed 10 was a racially motivated hate crime white supremacy racism a gunman wearing military-style clothing and body armor opened fire with a rifle at a supermarket in Buffalo, New York, killing 10 people in a shooting. Officials are investigating as a racially motivated hate crime. The alleged gunman who live-streamed the attack online was arraigned on a first-degree murder charge hours after he was taken into custody, law enforcement officials said. It's still just hours ago. A total of 13 people were shot at the Topps Friendly Market on Saturday afternoon, officials said at a press conference. Of the 13 victims, four were store employees, including a security guard, and the rest were customers. Eleven of the victims were black. Two were white, said Buffalo Police Commissioner Joseph Grandma, Grandma Glia. I'm saying Grandma Glia. I think that's it. It was straight up a racially motivated hate crime, said Eric County Sheriff John Garcia. This was pure evil. New York Governor Kathy Holcomb called the gunman a white supremacist who engaged in an act of terrorism. That's the way you say it, Governor Holcomb. That 
suspected racist white woman, but that's the way you say it, not hate crime. A public information officer with the Erie County District Attorney's Office named the suspect as 18-year-old Peyton S. Gendron, Gendron, I guess, G-E-N-D-R-O-N, who is white. WBFO reports he is from Conklin, New York, a community located southeast of Binghamton, that's more than three hour drive away from Buffalo. If convicted of first degree murder charge, holds a sentence of life without parole, said Erie County District Attorney John Flynn during a Saturday evening briefing. The suspect pleaded not guilty and was held without bail. He's scheduled to make a court appearance on Thursday. Stephen Bologna, the FBI special agent in charge of the Buffalo. Buffalo field office said the agency is investigating the shooting as a hate crime and an instance of racially motivated, violent extremism. Hmm. <laughs> I think governor Holcomb said it more accurately. Federal authorities are also looking at possible terrorism charges and they should. How is it not? Uh, the shooting began at two 30. Like they'll have the details. Make sure all that. A racist screed posted online detailed the plan of the attack. A screed authored by someone using the name as the shooter detailed a plan for the attack posted to the anonymous message board for Chan. That was with uh, the shooter in Southern California. Elliot Roger, an author identifying himself as Peyton Gendron, says extreme boredom during the pandemic led to his radicalization on 4chan. The 180 page document is full of racist rants and appears to embrace the great replacement white supremacist conspiracy theory that claims that an elite cabal of Jews, corporate leaders and politicians are intentionally diluting the white population through permissive immigration by promoting diversity. The same hateful conspiracy theory was championed by the gunman who perpetrated the massacre of 51 people in New Zealand mosques in 2019. The document's author calls the New Zealand shooter his biggest source of inspiration. I saw some reports they did say Dylan Storm Roof, but I mean, yeah, same thing. The document's author claims to be a student at the State University of New York's Broome Community College. The college said in a statement to NPR that he is not currently enrolled at the school. I will stop there. They said President Biden responded and yada yada. Uh, We'll get lots more details Uh, when this document, if it's available to download, that might be something to, you know, scroll through, see what he had to say. Hmm. It should be all God's children. But I mean, if this is like incredible, like we have to study this document and all the rest, then maybe uh, because we talked about this for a long. Elliot Roger had a manifesto. Dylan Storm Roof had a manifesto. If this is all, you know, what's been reported, maybe we read this manifesto for the book club. We will have to see. Certainly. We will get and This will be great for the Global Sunday Talk to see now. Is this being talked about around the world? Or is it, you know, abortion and, you know, what's going to happen? 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific Sunday. Much obliged for everyone's uh, participation. Man, if anything, the, exactly what I've been saying. 
for the past two years of the pandemic, everybody bought all these guns. They had that in the CDC report, huge increase in gun ownership, white people and non-white people over the past two plus years. All that means is that now you have lots of angry, stressed, drugged out, liquored up because they said it's been a huge increase in alcohol consumption, liquored up white and non-white people. Race soldiers, when they get stressed, have anxiety, fake or no, generally got to take it out on the Negroes. That right there, that's what I've been saying the whole time in terms of when you're out in public. I don't just say that for a reason. Like, hey, when you're out in public, you should be thinking, is it caller in Georgia? Is this Dylan Storm Roof? Whoa. Let me be alert. See what's happening here. Make sure I'm not in a dangerous environment. I don't know what this person's intentions are. As I've said, it's definitely not a time for verbal confrontations if anything this person is looking hostile and rowdy loud time to go if you didn't leave your residence prepared to kill and or die right now exit If you're in a vehicle, you're sober, you're buckled up, you are not on the cell phone. You drive into that parking lot at Tops, Buffalo, New York today. You don't want to be on the phone. Yeah, I told you, I never did like Will Smith. And you know, a coon is a coon. And all this is breaking out and you're not paying attention. Even you're talking. Let's say you're not talking about Will Smith. You could be talking about something constructive, counter racism. If you're out and about, you really want to be paying attention to what's that case. Hey, what happened? Delaware State University. That could also take place. Now, that might be one where if you're on the phone, you can just, hey, I'm going to put the phone down and you listen in and, you know, do whatever. If something goes wrong. But even then, you want to be paying attention because you don't want that to be something where they sneak up on you or they've been following you and you're not really paying attention because you're on the phone. Very dangerous times we are in. That's always the case. But I mean, wow, these past two years. The CDC says, and it seems, especially for black males. Non-white males in general, they said. Native Americans and Alaskans, they said too, right? All that said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. No name calling, no gossiping, no being reckless with the production of non 
white offspring. Very dangerous times on the plantation. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Uh